Welcome to Team Rabbit Hole Edition 229 with Snore, perennial musings. Join the team as we catch back up with Snore, a Virgo synchromistic author in Japan, and chat about the Dao and its ever-repeating patterns. Once again, well met, Snore. Hi guys, welcome again. Nice to hear from you. Yeah, how's it going? Good morning in Japan. Yeah, it's a bright, early, sunny morning over here. Beautiful. So something we tend to do, as you know, on these episodes, uh, and do hit mute when you're not talking, so we just don't hear myself feedback looping, um, is correspond the episode number to uh, the major arcana. In this case, it would be, if I'm doing this right, 2 plus 2 is 4 plus... Uh, yeah, 4 is the emperor. Um, so the emperor card, I lead by example, setting boundaries and following rules. Believing in the concrete world around you, focusing on actions and results, holding your ground. Raphael, what card do you have? We have number 43, the Angel of Prosperity. Belonging to the powers, this angel destroys the forces of the enemy and frees the slaves or depressed people with addictions, influences the prosperity of businesses and strengthens those who occupy a prominent position. It is Deus Rex Dominator, which means God, King, and Ruler, associated with the Five of Cups in the Tarot The affirmation goes, I release my attachment to quote-unquote expected outcomes. So we got full Bashar going on right there as well. Angel qualities include prosperity, abundance of noble feelings, peace, plentitude, and the capacity to foresee. Interesting. Znor, I'm kind of curious if either of those cards synced up in any way and resonated for you. Yeah, I'm just reading um, Crowley's uh, Thought Deck Tarot uh, summary of these cards. This is from the uh, number four, the Emperor. And it says, this card means government by means of two contrasting symbols. These are the ram which when wild is solitary and courageous, and the lamb, which is docile and cowardly, and is in fact the ram tamed by authority. The posture typifies the alchemical sulfur and the fiery element of the universe. The red eagle represents the red tincture of the alchemists, which is the nature of gold. Um, so that's interesting. I think uh, uh, it's interesting. It's uh, talking about the ram, and we're, we're coming into at least the, the start of spring so um that's a good sign the the idea of uh the idea of holding holding your ground also is interesting and it was funny there was kind of a paradox in the cards to me where it was like the emperor's like you know go out there kubla Khan it like build it they will come thy will be done and then the angel's kind of like build it but have no you know don't be so set on expectations that you throw people in a gas chamber when they don't fit your fucking expectations or whatever you know it's kind of this, uh the middle ground between the two like having an agenda but not being uh fascist about it kind of thing yeah and the idea of the uh the lamb um tamed by authority he's actually the uh he's actually 
it reminds me of of William Blake and uh, what William Blake talks about the orc cycle. Um, so you have this uh, Urizen, who is sort of the god of authority, um, similar to the Ram in this in this write up, anyways, and then uh, orc as this sort of revolutionary uh, figure fighting against Urizen, and finally Urizen is overthrown, but Orc becomes the new, uh, he becomes the new Ram, he becomes the new, uh, the tyrant or the new government, and then, and then the cycle continues. Um, so I thought that, that sort of rings a bell as well. Yes, definitely resonate on the perennial front. Uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, you know, the whole Saturn Uranus, um, kind of situation. Um, and also, uh, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, it seems there's always this, um, the soil is the breeding ground for the new, but the new breaks forth and then that decays and eventually that decayed plant matter becomes the next layer of soil and so it goes evermore. The song that reigns, uh, you know, the song is what it is. Uh, I'm trying to think of the lamb chops thing. Is that this is the song that never ends? That's what I was thinking. Um, um, so what have you been up to? It's been a hot minute, uh, a couple months maybe, a month or two, I don't know. Um, any developments on your front in your personal life? Any kind of epiphanies? You hanging, hanging on well? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm doing a uh, sort of a deep dive into uh, Neoplatonism these days. What was sort of the whole tradition coming from uh, ancient Egypt um, through the pre-Socratics and then the uh, Platonic dialogues, and especially those dialogues that are emphasized by the later Neoplatonists as sort of containing Plato's uh, more esoteric work. And then from there, um, just looking at the, the middle Platonists, including uh, Plutarch, um, especially his essay on Isis and Osiris, which is just basically, that's our main source of information about um, the mysteries of Isis and Osiris. Um, in the Egyptian uh, writings, of course, Osiris is all the way through it. Isis and Osiris is already through it. But the, the myth in itself is not um, coherently written until we get to Plutarch, which is interesting. And then from the Middle Platonists up to the, the Neoplatonists, and, a, and a, especially Iamblichus. Um, and I wanted to do that because Iamblichus and the Neoplatonists, especially that whole, this whole sort of lineage, um, comes back it goes sort of underground almost for about a thousand years it although um it's present in sufism and other places outside of the west um but yeah largely sort of underground and then it comes back up in the renaissance and then it very much influences people like uh giordano bruno um I love what you're saying, but just to anyone, including me, who may not be perfectly familiar with that, let's say, line of reasoning you're speaking with, or even just mentioning Giordano Bruno and so on and some others, you know, I know this is the good stuff, but could you maybe lay out briefly, philosophically or however, what this means, what this entails? Um, yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's a huge question, but... <laughs> um, well, just the simple ones here, you know. Tell it to me like I'm five. I think, uh, yeah, I think to break it down is, um, yeah, where to start with this? Um, 
we can start with the 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 neoplatonists and basically the neoplatonists um are an extension of plato's own philosophy which i think most people are familiar with um but what happened with neoplatonism especially in the work of uh, plotinus is um he emphasized the one as being the sort of you we find this also in plato plato emphasized um the good the true and the beauty uh the beautiful um and plotinus reduced that or uh, I, I shouldn't even say reduced that he sort of characterized that as the one but plotinus's um main emphasis um and where he differed maybe from plato is he emphasized that we could advance towards the one and eventually become unified with the one. Um, so in that sense, people subsequently, philosophers subsequently um, sort of conclude that the Neoplatonists are very similar to um, ideas in, in Indian philosophy coming from the Upanishads and then in Advaita Vedanta, which stresses that um, the self or the Atman can be joined with Brahman, the higher self, or the one. Um, so these two philosophies are very similar. I don't know if um, your audience is familiar with that. But uh, in any case, um, Neoplatonism sort of, it became suppressed after the, uh, after the Roman Empire converted to Christianity in a, in a very authoritarian form of Christianity under Constantine and then afterwards, especially with um, Justinian cue the emperor the, card yeah exactly and uh, so then the mysteries were suppressed um, the platonic academy was, was suppressed and so a lot of the philosophers uh, neoplatonic philosophers had to basically escape the, em the empire um, so they went east and so in the, in the west these philosophies were sort of suppressed in a way, this is a bigger question because they, um, in a way, they sort of get sneaked in through the back door and even enter into uh, Christian theology. But uh, but the mainstream of it gets suppressed up until uh, uh, Ficino's translation of the Hermetic writings and then Plato afterwards in the uh, in the fourteen hundreds, and then it enters into the mainstream again. Um, in the Renaissance, and the people of the Renaissance thought that because um, there's a sort of misunderstanding that the Herm uh, Hermes, um, the, th the thrice greatest Hermes, um, was earlier than Moses. Uh, and so there was this sort of uh, theology that was being passed down through Moses and then through the Old Testament and New Testament uh, writers. And so that we could include Hermes as a, a kind of prior theology, which is not, they didn't say it was, a, it was a full revelation, of course, but it was a partial revelation, so it could be accepted as that. Um, because what I guess up to that point, it was just heretical. I mean, they were like, do not mix that stuff. We don't want to tell we've got, like, version 3.0 or whatever. Yeah, it was... Um, 
like I said, it was sort of in this underground tradition with uh, you could encounter it through magic and and alchemy um, and and other streams of thought. But yeah, it wasn't in the mainstream at all. But for a time in the Renaissance, for a brief time, um, it was accepted as being this sort of prior partial revelation. Um, until later on, it was um, it was discovered basically that uh, actually these writings were from the uh, um, second century or so, and so not prior to Moses or anything else, and basically, like you said, heretical. Um, so there's a shift there. But in the Renaissance, um, when people believed that. Um, these texts could be considered at least partially orthodox. Um, you get this new flowering of, uh, of philosophy, which is really uh, incredible to see. And so then people like Ficino and then later on uh, people like Giordano Bruno um, really take it up and really uh, Giordano Bruno took it to the point of, of complete heresy um, where he went beyond, he sort of transcended uh, the Christian tradition altogether and said we needed to get back to uh, ancient Egyptian religion and the sort of imminental view of, of, uh, of the world and of God. Interesting. So you've been on that kick for a minute. What inspired this? Um, well, I've, always, I've, I've been looking at this stuff for... Uh, you're just doing a deep dive now in a particular for, zone. Yeah, for decades now. I just want to. Uh, I, I I just want to uh, sort of refresh my mind and go right back to the uh, the original source texts and uh, and look at those. Um, so, like I said, I'll be looking um, at the uh, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, and then and then into the the original pre-Socratic writings and the Platonic dialogues, and then the. Uh, and some of the texts by the Middle Platonists and the Neoplatonists. Um, I just think that these are things that we should all know. Um, these should be taught in elementary school. We sort of uh, lost this tradition in the West. Um, and uh, like you were saying, now, now it's sort of considered uh, sort of a heretical tradition, or at least it was. Um, but it's unfortunate um, because I think there's a lot of overlap, really, with even uh, Christian orthodoxy. Um, so, yeah, I would just like to have a, a, a grasp of that, like a, a clear enough grasp of that, the same as I would have a grasp of the the sort of mainstream um, mainstream version of the uh, history of Christianity or something. Um, it's interesting because this is an Epworth card episode and it was talking about like I, I know the concrete world around me um, and I know Raphael is more way more into I haven't done much research on uh, historical resets it's very tricky like a good example like with what you were saying when um, you know people in the Renaissance were under the impression that there was new information like that you know that they could um, get back to a truer source if you want to put it that way and then ultimately I guess they found that it wasn't so uh, you know, later on, um, it kind of reminds me a little of McKenna's arcade revival. <laughs> huh? I always love how you how you condensing history. All I want to say is that it's pretty obvious, and we just spoke about this with Kaipacha, um, in terms of you know, Aromanic forces and different ages. 
Um, I'm not necessarily sure because you make it sound like it's, which it may partially be just a kind of collective process. Of course, I just want to point out that especially if we talk about everything being one or not, this also harkens back to the story of what's his name, uh, Tutankhamun, I believe, if that's also the way he's uh, pronounced in English, who also, as the story goes, exactly. He was like, uh, everything's one. They were like, no, 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 bro. And they were yeah. like, the priest class not happy about that, you know, because they live of you believing you are separate. So I just want to say that uh, there's Straight certainly the all kinds of forces involved in that in terms of that's what, what what was my thought. I was like, okay, if back then, and that's also the main uh, mainline history, Renaissance, Da Vinci, you know, all these geniuses and all this great philosophy, as you properly point out, then I'm like, okay, what exactly happened? That because this is obviously at the very least more aesthetically pleasing than whatever's being produced now, right? Uh, not even talking about validity or retraceability or <laughs> truth for that matter. Right, that's kind of what I was getting at because I, at this point, um, maybe this is a postmodern issue or something, but it's like I don't understand what to find as an authority on anything particularly. So that's kind of what I was saying. You know, like at one point, the Renaissance people like, we were misinformed by the authorities, i.e., the church. So we need to uproot the plant and go to the deep core of the mineral bed that is the Egyptian, whatever, right? What you were saying. And then eventually, whether this is true or not, um, you know, new sets of data came in to say it wasn't, you know, there's not a bed of data there after all. And that, you know, that's kind of, it's tricky because it, uh, even with the, um, on a, uh, I can keep mispronouncing this on, on an cotton, I think, or say it again. Akhenaten. Okay. That's where I'm getting this from. Uh, screwed up. Uh, I'm pretty sure they were like, they destroyed any evidence. Like they, you know, any car cartouches and like hieroglyphics and shit, they, like made it rubble, buried it. They were like erase that shit from history. We don't want to talk about that. I mean, a reset essentially culturally. Um, I'm surprised we even know about him and uh, he and his wife. They had these elongated heads. They were all about, you know, like emanations of the sun. You know, uh, they, they were you know, monists, basically, before. And I don't think the Pantheon was looked at quite that way. And that's um, almost like, and I would love to have Snor comment this, just basically to cut to the chase. As you say, it's monism. And that's like the supreme heresy, is it not? <laughs> yes. Um Scholars point out also that uh, even Akhenaten's um, religion was not completely monist. There were at least two gods in his system. One was um, Aton, which was the disk of the sun, um, right. which is interesting. We can talk about that. But then, then there was Akhenaten himself um, as as a god. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. The the, uh, the priests of Amon. Um, I think based in Memphis in Egypt, um, right. were opposed uh, was were opposed to his religion. But we we don't really have a very clear idea of um, how different it was. You know, like a um, like there's speculation. Um, Sigmund Freud um, put out a book called Moses and Monotheism, and he speculated that. Uh, that Moses was actually an Egyptian, and that he he was a follower of of the uh, of Akhenaten's religion, basically the uh, the worship of Aton, and he spread that to the Hebrews, and 
what happened was it was sort of sort of a mixture of this um i think freud called it like the uh, hittite um volcano god and aton and uh that became the new religion of the hebrew people um and and then it sort of carried on through there um but as you said Raphael, it's kind of like um it's it's hard to say like it's hard to say if if Aton's, uh, sorry, Akhenaten's reform was a good one or not. And um, just briefly because, to oh, reinforce your point and also kind of get your comment on it, I found this quite curious. So I had been, uh, in a sense, following or watching quite some of Michael Tessarian's older presentations, especially. Still awesome guy, unslave.com is the current website. And anyway, so in his, I think, Origins and Oracles presentations, he's talking about the Bible and all of these stories. And in his version, he's kind of like saying that, so he's connecting Aten and the cult of the sun as something negative and also current, let's say. And he's tracing it back actually to Aton and kind of in his cosmology, this is in a sense the root of all evil actually. And that the Ammonite priests in this case actually kicked him out for good reason, as far as I could understand this. And anyhow, the interesting point is that, for example, Armin Risi, a quite known German or Swiss philosopher, he also wrote about this. And he puts the story more the way you put it. And that's also more the way I tend to see it, which means that if you want to somehow discriminate, that one could say Aton was more the positively polarized force, seeing everything as one or Achintya Beda Abeda Tatva, you know, simultaneous oneness and variegatedness, let's say, of existence. And uh, that in this case, the Ammonite priests were actually just, you know, greedy or power hungry or whatever, and they could more be seen as the, maybe let's say, aromanic force. I guess this would also be your assessment. I was just kind of surprised that Tessarian, whom I think is quite interesting guy, had this opposing view. So just to reinforce that here, also the scholars certainly are not clear on what to believe exactly. Yeah, I I remember listening to uh, Michael Sarian um, like years back, also to those those older uh, recordings he did. Um, did I remember so, yeah, correctly? I, yeah, I think I think so. Like I, I think that's his perspective. Um, I I don't know if we can reduce it either way. I don't think the right. I I don't think the knowledge is there to reduce it either way. Um, it it's possible that. Akhenaten um, was was in in a way in the wrong, or at least um, he made a break from uh, Egyptian tradition, which is which is the big thing. Like um, the whole of Egyptian philosophy was this um, philosophy of permanence; things stay the the same. It's basically the course of nature that they worshipped, and so um, Akhenaten, in making such a a break. Um, disturbed that um, and so in isolating the disk of the sun even though probably what he meant by the disk of the sun does not mean the physical distant, uh, disk of the sun that we, we, we think of now um, it still had a it still of course had a, a, an esoteric side of it but he isolated that from all the other gods um, which was the big step and so 
yeah, it's it, it's hard to say. Like it's a, it's a hard call. I don't I don't think worship of the sun itself is wrong, um, and I think when you listen to Michael Sarian, uh, you might get that impression, or or someone might get that impression. Um, so it's not it's not solar worship itself that's wrong, but it's isolating or separating the sun from the rest of the the cosmos and and elevating it above all else right uh, i think is 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 the heresy that that uh akhenaten was accused of and here we have of course the great difficulty between actual intention even of a metaphysical view or let's call it religion or spirituality then how it is being communicated i was about to say marketed and what kind of forces collide here and then especially also how it is, if at all, comprehended, which is a whole issue unto itself. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I was I was reading about um, the Egyptian underworld also, in, including in, in, in this, uh, not in Akhenaten's view, but the, sort of the traditional view of, of Egyptian philosophy or religion. Um, and so basically the, the underworld was the course of the sun as it moved below the horizon and made its way as they thought underneath the world and then up again um, in the eastern horizon um, and, and arose in the morning and so you have this so but at the same time they believe that the underworld was in the stars um, so it's a very interesting idea it's like uh, it's basically the the entire course of nature. When 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 somebody dies, they go back to the course of nature, which includes the um, the sun as Osiris. Or when you when you read the Book of the Dead, um, the deceased becomes Osiris, and he makes his journey through um, through the underworld, which is the night. But when he's in the underworld, he's 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 in the stars. You know, it's it's the same course of things. Um, so I, I found that very interesting. Um, so even with that, um, in Egyptian philosophy, it, it's not, or in, I don't even know if we can call it philosophy because the the problem, uh, or people, it's not a problem at all. But uh, um, the difficulty in calling it a philosophy is that it seems to be contradictory um, because it's not rational. And its its emphasis is not on rationality; its emphasis is on myth. Um, so, with a myth, um, it's possible to have the underworld as something under the earth, but at the same time, in the stars. Uh, in 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 that sense of things, it's not contradictory at all. Um, if that's making sense. Yeah, I mean, we deal with these kinds of things all the time where we know, you know, through at least the scientific models of today, the impermanent holographic kind of quality of quantum reality, and yet we live as though we're very, you, know, you see what I mean? Like, we live with very different kind of paradoxes. I guess the paradox had to do a little with more with, with uh, myth building and um, the world around them. I'm curious what the... Uh, the Osiris and Isis kind of, you were saying it was kind of jumbled before a certain point. Was that just like kind of like Eleusinian mystery, like no one wrote it down really? Or how, how do you perceive that? 
Yeah, I don't know if it was jumbled. It was just, it was just, um, it was just partial. It was just in pieces. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure. There doesn't seem to be, I was looking into that just, I was just reading about that this morning, actually. Um, And like there's this idea that the Eleusinian mysteries um, are a complete continuation from the Osiris mysteries of ancient Egypt. Um, And there's direct correspondences, for example, like uh, Osiris completely corresponds to Dionysus and Isis completely corresponds to Demeter. Um, And those two gods are the major figures in the Eleusinian mysteries. Um, But when you, when scholars looked back at what was going on in Egypt, um, there's no real sense of mysteries as such, you know, in, in terms of there being, uh, uh, there being a rite of initiation and so on. Like this idea of, um, this, this private secret, um, organization that you become a, an initiate of, and then rise, rise up in the ranks that didn't exist in the same way in, in ancient Egypt. Um, whereas, but it's interesting because you read all these ancient writers, ancient classical writers, like Greek writers, and they say, um, we've been initiated into the Eastern, uh, the Egyptian, um, mysteries. Yeah. But what happens, I think though, is that, uh, there's other, there's other indications in the, in the classical writings. Like there's, there's one, uh, I can't remember the writer, um, but what he's saying is what we practice in secret in the in Attica, which means in uh where the Eleusinian mysteries were were practiced, was done openly on Crete. Um so under the Minoan religion of Crete, the mysteries were open. Everybody knew about it. And, versus and I think I, I think that's what happened uh in Egypt as well. Like in and and Egypt and Crete were always aligned like for for thousands of years so I think this is more of along the lines of what happened is that uh, the Egyptian religion was more open like that it was sort of um, exported to, to, to Crete and then from Crete it reaches Greece and then it does become sort of more closed off and more um literally the mysteries uh so i think i think the osiris um myth like obviously it's there in in egypt all over the place it's just not um what i meant before is it it has it it wasn't written down to its full extent until plutarch which is a lot later than (laughs) like thousands of years later after uh um but it, that could be because everybody knew it. It was so... Uh, it was like commonplace. Yeah, it was so open that everybody knew it, um, carried on orally. Um, or, 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 there, or there could be, or there could be uh, lost texts, which is the other big thing. That's, and and that's, uh, that's probable too, you know. But, never say never. Dead Sea Scrolls made me realize that. Say, oh, shit, there can't be lost scrolls. Um, it reminds me a little of what you're saying about like uh, the movie Avatar, the James Cameron movie, where it's like the people going there, are, like you know, studying, like you know, Sigourney Weaver and all those characters are like, 
these people are so interesting, their culture, blah, blah, blah. And um, they probably look at it as an outsider, so it is a mystery to them, whereas the people walking around live, breathe, and, and exude the philosophy to the point that there is no exo versus esoteric. It's just lived fully. It's a supersaturated um, reality as opposed to you know compartmentalized, I guess. And I didn't realize, um, I mean, I guess I could look into it, but more, more with the Crete, uh, in Egypt kind of connection over to Greece, you just keep on outsourcing something. I mean, eventually, especially in a world that was, I mean, it's not quite globalized like we have today. So, you know, um, you see this kind of well represented in the movie 13th warrior, um, which is kind of a Beowulf jam in a sense where, uh, or even Robin hood with, uh, Kevin Cosner with, the um, uh, Islamic kind of fighter or whatever guy, the guy from the Middle East, uh, people were cross pollinating, but it was still pretty, solid differentiations so uh yeah i can imagine something you know you know something same thing happens now like you're you know you're in japan like things that people take for granted in japan if you brought it over even into like a heavily kind of asian influenced place like honolulu or san francisco it'd still be really weird let alone if you took it to like kansas city or something you know so it's like uh, and that's lessened now because of the internet and stuff like that. But back then, I, I guess I'm seeing the logic chain of what you're saying. Uh, uh, yeah, once you start exporting things, they become more and more mysterious the further the distance is from the originating point. Um, what were some of these, I mean, you've been reading about this this morning, like what were some of the kind of attributes of this culture um, that we can take note of that don't maybe, you know, get all weird, uh, you know, Crowley and all these people, uh, the, uh, the Egyptian Book of the Dead is... I'm pretty sure what Timothy Leary was all about too. Um, but I could be tripping on that. Yeah, I think Leary put out a book called uh, The Psychedelic Experience, I think, if I recall. But uh, it was based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Like it was okay, his, um, his kind of psychedelic LSD version of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, but that's, it, it, I think that ties in as well. You know, it's. Um, it's hard to say where all these myths um, coalesce. Like, um, it's very. I, I I think it's very probable that they have a uh, a single source, or or at least a a very very similar source. Um, so, yeah, a lot of what you find in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, I think is is. In, in some ways similar to the uh, Egyptian Book of the Dead. I, the Egyptian Book of the Dead is um, like an instruction manual uh, the t telling the deceased um, magic words that you need as you pass through the underworld. Um, you need to know the names of the gods and the names of objects that you, uh, um, you encounter and the names of places. Um, and so having these magical words gives you this power to to pass through these things um whereas in the in the tibetan book of the dead uh same thing you encounter all these gods um all these lights and gods and uh bodhisattvas um kind of hell beings whatever but the emphasis all the way through the uh, tibetan book of the dead is to identify with the things that you encounter um so that's the whole point of it is is um the family members are reading this to the deceased hopefully to remind the deceased to identify 
with the brightest lights or if you if you pass beyond the brightest lights identify with whatever you see you know even if you get to the the hell beings or whatever you've got to identify um with these things and if you do if you're able to do that um you can uh escape the wheel of of rebirth um it's like of how to get people, out of the ma uh, mouse it's like it's when the right weird. place for that exercise no identifying with the demon beings <laughs> Uh, Raphael, say it again. No, I'm just joking, but actually it's also kind of serious. We're in a good place in terms of learning to identify with the demons. I mean, everyone can take their own pick now, but uh, it's a good time. You know, many strong energies incarnated upon this time. Yeah, it's a good time just to, to see the demons. Um, I, I don't know how many people identify with them. That's, that's, that's the trick. Um, for myself as well, it's it's very easy to objectify the demons and say that they're outside of us and something else and antagonistic towards us. But it's hard to look at them and say they're aspects of my own mind. You know, that's that's the hard part. Um, that's the real apotheosis. I don't know how familiar with uh, Genesis, the band you are, um, but they have this dope ass double album called "Lamb Lies Down on Broadway." Ironically, we we're talking about lambs and rams. Um, and ironically also they had, uh, the band, which was like Phil Collins and, um, you know, when he was a drummer, they said that they, I remember now that they were like, let's jam to like, you know, Pharaohs on the Nile. And then Peter Gabriel went in and, um, you know, wrote lyrics and then it's a song, but like the band's intentions were nothing at all. Like the lyricist. And then you have this new chimera, which is kind of resonant a little, what we're talking about, where people might have different intentions and different, um, programming but the, what i was getting to uh with that is shit i'm spacing on what i was getting to with that oh apotheosis at the very end spoiler alert you should still listen to the album like um this guy's trying to save his brother in a dreamland kind of uh zip tepi kind of situation like right matrix kind of stuff and um he gets and he jumps in this river uh, this river and you know his brother's drowning and pulls him out of the river and he looks in his face and he sees himself and he has this kind of, you know, there's this crazy song called It's like, it's in your, you know, it's chicken, it's eggs, it's in between your legs, it's here, it's now, it's like, it's this monic, you know, monistic monad, all is one kind of thing. Um, and in a weird way, kind of what you're saying, Zanora, is like, how does one identify? I don't think we have to fully identify. I mean, I think differentiation is real. So it's like, I don't have to say I am exactly that demon, but to, that's the compassion of Buddhism, right? Where it's like, oh, I have elements of that in myself, and it has elements of the goodness I find in myself in it, or whatever, you know, like that kind of thing. And it kind of evens the playing field out. But then again, I'm not a uh, comparative religion expert, so I don't really know what Tibetans are thinking when they're saying these things versus Egyptians. Uh, but it reminds me a little of Dark City, um, you know, with uh, if you've seen that movie, um, with the ma uh, mouse rat maze or whatever, and it, it seems like consciousness in a Gnostic sense has kind of uh, gotten stuck in matter, right? Pluto approved here a little, or Plato approved, I mean. And um, and there's a method and a manual on how to exit properly. And if you don't, you might get snagged up on the uh, machinery of the machine or whatever. Yeah, there's, um, just to get back to Tibetan Buddhism, um, which is, uh, what you said just reminds me of this. Um, there's this- Always uh, jam on sinks for the record. Never feel bad. Okay. are awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, there's this practice in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, which is called 
I, I don't know how to pronounce it. I've never heard it pronounced. It's spelt, uh, usually it's it's transliterated as a C-H-O-D, chod. I think it's actually cho or something. Oh, yeah, I wrote per- this in your book. Keep going. But this is like a very specific kind of weird thinking. Keep going. Yeah, yeah so there's this, um, basically what it is, uh, Iliade talks about this. Marcia Iliade talks about this also in his book on shamanism. And so it seems like it's, um, derived from early shamanic practices. Um, but what it is, is uh, a practitioner, a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner, would go out into the wilderness, um, and by wilderness, like, uh, I don't, I've been to Tibet, I don't know if you guys have been there, but it's, it's not, there's no trees or anything, it's just like, <laughs> it's, well, it's high, it's high, high, high plateau, high. you know, it's like, it looks like the looks like the surface of the moon or something, you know? Um, but so what they meant by, uh, wilderness is basically charnel grounds, um, where they would leave bodies out for sky burial, um, for the animals to come or the birds to come and, uh, just feed on, feed on the dead bodies. Um, so generally these places of course were avoided, you know, by, by living people, um, um, thought of as, as haunted, and beyond that, as uh, visited frequently by wild animals who who were dangerous, so people avoided these places. But these Cho Chod practitioners would go out in the middle of the night to these scary places, and they would have a uh, trumpet made of a like a, a human leg bone, um, generally. And then they would have a uh, a drum, I think, made from a skull. And so they would make all this noise and chant and basically invite the demons of that place to attack their mind and body, um, to basically rip apart their, their, their body and rip apart their minds. So not only a physical attack, like a, a total full-on existential attack of everything they are, um, ripping apart their ego. Um, and so of course people doing this, um, you could go mad, um, doing this practice, um, very easy to, to completely lose your mind and never come back. But, um, a a successful practitioner would see the demons of the place, um, fully visualize them and see them attack his body. And then basically come to the realization that these are a part of his own mind and uh and then become integrated with them and and then and then his practice would be finished but some this would take sometimes months you know to do like of of this sort of practice um but uh i I think that's a uh that's sort of a, the the key example of this idea of of like <laughs> like the unions talk about uh, integrating your shadow, but this is <laughs> this is the real shadow. You know, the the shadow, um, the, the shadow. So uh, staring at the abyss, as they say. Yeah, even even more than just staring at the abyss, the the abyss takes shape as as a demon, and and fully attacks you with with everything it's got. Um, and then it sounds like you Nietzsche are, on acid. I'm sure this is how it's tripped to God. It's like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going, though. Raphael, if you wanted to say something, I saw you. 
No, just to mention that I agree with what you said. I even met a guy one time and here I guess the lines get blurry between this and certain Ayurvedic practices and who knows what. I met a very interesting guy and he actually did that, like meditate on cemeteries and we spoke about all kinds of, you know, interesting things. I met him in India, you know, just sinks, let's say. But if the story relates uh, by Dolores Ashcroft Novicki, who wrote a book on magical thought forms, the story of Pima that she relates is correct, then it very much seems just like you said that, I guess, Tibetan Buddhists basically see the world as your own holographic projection. And the story of Pima simply is that a little boy goes to the monastery and really wants to know spirituality, quickly finds out there's nothing there, gets to a hermit. And through a long and arduous process of repeatedly almost dying, he manages to manifest a demon that's actually his higher self out of his imagination and have it then come with him. And the ultimate litmus test, the real test, then after he's already graduated from his, let's say, hermit mystic master, is to actually come back to him and be like, okay, I created this great Daemon, daemon, or higher self, and it's super awesome and everything is easy because I have prescience and all superpowers. But somehow I still can't really believe that this is actually real, that it's just created out of my own mind. And uh, and then the, the guru says, well, you recognize that pretty well, even though I didn't explicitly tell you this is just a projection of your own mind that you created. And everything else that you could ever perceive is just the same as that. And that was the actual point of the exercise. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's that's exactly it, I think. Um, and it, yeah, it should be. Uh, we should keep in mind also that uh, uh, within Tibetan Buddhism, there is um, full visualization practice alongside this. So, so uh, even normal um, practitioners would visualize. Um, would focus on a particular bodhisattva or whatever um, and have maybe an image of that bodhisattva and visualize it to the extent where that would become real. Um, and then you would identify with that um, as well. So exactly. they, would have this, they would have this practice where they would visualize it as being real. And then um, when it becomes real, then further visualize it disappearing back into emptiness and then and then so on, back and forth like that. Um, so I guess this would be called, um, well, this is, this is something that Jung talked about uh, directly in, uh, in his introduction to um, Evan Wentz's uh, translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, Jung, Jung, his own term for this is the act of imagination. Um, and so allowing your imagination to become so so real that um it becomes you, almost like you physical it and then you deconcretize it yeah exactly yeah so so uh and he was jung was doing that um the the record of that is is in his red book um and he he was doing that on his own for for the longest time and of course that didn't get published in his lifetime it didn't get published until i, I think 2011 or something like fully published um, I haven't so it was read kind of, it. What's the gist of that? I mean, basically, did you like create a demon and then like this is awesome. it and disappear it? <laughs> I mean, I just took took a look at it. Snor can talk more about it, but it basically looks like what did I want to say? It looks more like be here now or something than you know any psychological study book. 
Yeah, do you, uh, go on with that. Like, how how are you comparing the two? Be here now. Like and, and oh, honestly, I just took a brief look, as far as I remember, like on some pages, and it seemed that first of all, it's not the default typeset, and so on, and it even had paintings. Or I'm completely making this up, but that's what I believe I saw. No, you're absolutely right. It's it's all um, like half the book is his illustrations. Well, it, it, um. Yeah, his 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 original book. It's it's his own manuscript. There was a there was a thing called the Red Book that he had himself. And it was just this massive um, manuscript, hard hardbound manuscript, and it was all written out by hand, very beautiful hand, and then um, interspersed between his writings, he would have these these beautiful paintings, um, kind of surrealistic, mystically inspired paintings. Um, and then, uh, and so later on, when it was uh, published in 2011, or if, if I'm right with that, um, you could still, I, I have the huge book. It's still a massive book. Um, and so all the paintings are there, and all his original script is, is written in there, reproduced in there as well. But then they've, uh, they've taken the prose and then and written it out to normal type so that, so it's more readable. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. It's not it's not a it's not a, a psychological text at all. And and Jung didn't intend it to be that. He intended it, I think, as more of his private exploration, um, and his own practice of active imagination, um, which he was using clinically. Like he would uh, he would tell his patients to explore their dreams and to go further into their dreams and into their dream symbolism in the same way. But, uh, but this, this book, the red book and, and his other journals, which he called the black books, I think, um, were all sort of his own private explorations of things. Um, and there's admissions. Like if you read, uh, his book, myths dreams and uh what is it recollections or something i can't remember uh it's basically uh uh an autobiography not so much of his life as his own visions and dreams but he in that book that's a good book to start with this just to find out what he's doing in the red book um and you'll find in in that book that it, it's it's all it's all his own practice of uh, the act of imagination. Um, well, the emperor card, I lead by example, right? So it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna do this shit, Raphael. What were we gonna say? Well, just to point out that um, in terms of how upside down it then oftentimes is, so we learn, you know, Jung, of course, at least by now, is revered and so on. I think for good reason. And anyhow, there is an expression. So we know through, you know, whether it's shamanism, anything you just said, or Bashar, you know, imagination is your connection to your higher self or source or however you want to call it. At the same time, there is an expression, the translation would be somewhat, which you probably don't understand, to look into the fool's box. <laughs> and in German, this would translate or Viennese, whatever, ins Narrenkastel schauen. So basically, this means this would be said, and I believe this is where I heard it first. I'm pretty sure people using it unconsciously, of course, as a child, when you're basically staring into the air and you're like daydreaming and someone could say, oh, du schaust ins Nahenkastel. So you're looking into this fool's box and more is like a 
derogatory statement or like, oh, you're not paying attention to the real world, you're, you're daydreaming. just daydreaming. But it is literally, I mean, it is the fool's box. And I'm like, oh my God, like if people only knew tarot, they knew that, you know, that's where you have to look. And that's also what you find with most, you know, great philosophers, scholars, luminaries, is that ultimately they developed their very own cosmology, which very, very much also hinges on this, you know, zero point void uh, source uh, connection, which is the fool. And yeah, I just find that uh, reference uh, curious of, you know, you're being told in a different way, whilst at the same time, in a sense, told to revere those that really apply it, but you're being told you shouldn't do it. So, you know, like obvious contradictions, um, even insofar down as to settle, of course, into language and education. That's excellent. That's, that's perfect, really. Yeah. The, um, so the fool's box, that's the, obviously, that's the fool card. That's the zero, you know, um, that's emptiness. I could say look into the fool's bag and like, we all think it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I was just, and, and you find that all through literature too. That's why, um, so maybe you're asking me before why I was why I'm doing this kind of deep dive again. It's because um, I've been more uh, more and more into literature, and you realize that all the way through literature, um, you find all of this philosophy. Um, you call it Neoplatonism or Hermeticism or whatever. Um, and really, to understand a lot of literature, um, you've you've got to look at the the tradition. You know. Um, so I was just reading, uh, Dostoevsky's The Idiot just, just a little while ago. And the idiot, uh, the character of the idiot, uh, um, he's called Prince Mishkin. And the opening scene is Mishkin coming from a, basically from an asylum in, uh, Switzerland or, uh, and he's coming back to Russia and he's dressed completely inappropriately for for the Russian winter. Um, I think it's autumn maybe or something. Uh, and he's carrying with him his, uh, a bag, like a, <laughs> all his stuff in the world is, is just, it's just in a bag. And it's exactly the fool from the tarot, you know? Um, and that's his character in the, uh, in the novel. He plays the fool or he plays Christ. Um, and so this is something that uh, Nietzsche talks about when he reads Dostoevsky. He's reading The Idiot as well. Um, and so Nietzsche, Nietzsche just says explicitly what Dostoevsky is making implicit and saying, Christ is the fool, you know, Christ is the idiot. Um, and if you don't realize that, you don't, you don't get Christianity. Um, and so that was something else that Nietzsche said is Christ was the only Christian, <laughs> you know, everybody else that followed, uh, didn't get that point. Um, to be a real Christian, you need to go back, um, to what you're saying, Raphael, the, the fool's box, you know, um, and start the journey from there. And if he's leaving from an asylum, that's another way of looking at a fool's box in a negatively polarized light. It's like all those guys, man, oh my gosh. Um, and what you're kind of saying reminds me a little of Forrest Gump when he goes on his running kind of expedition, <laughs> um, his midlife crisis or whatever, he grows that beard. It's like he's doing the path, like he's being the Christ or the fool or whatever, and other people try to emulate him. And that, you know, you, if you guys have seen Forrest Gump, I imagine both of you have. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's an idiot character as well, a fool character. No, definitely.
can take it or leave it. And other people like, you know, one day he's like, well, I guess I'm done running because it's just like the season's over. And everyone's like, what? This is what I built my whole orthodoxy upon this, this philosophy. Like what, what's the meaning? You know, it's like, it doesn't have an inherent meaning giggle, uh, you know, like, like a trickster or whatever. Um, yeah. So, uh, Raphael, I really want, um, you to spin off on, on your own take on the perennial philosophy. Cause I haven't, uh, I haven't really heard you talking much about it, um, so I'd like to I'd like to hear more. Well, I would just say that, as you uh, said yourself, it is the perennial philosophy. So I'm not sure because I'm not, in a sense, deliberately <laughs> very well read on quite a few of those. Though I've read, I don't know, you know, some French philosophers both in school and then later, and then it's eventually you stumble across Krishnamurti. Somehow I picked up Henry David Thoreau pretty early as well, like briefly after high school. Could have been early actually, but you know, <laughs> that's not what they recommend in English class, at least not in Austria. Maybe it's more common in America. Henry David Thoreau, Walden, for example, like excellent, you know, simple practical philosophy and also part of perennial philosophy, right? And uh, to me, so I did, you know, read this and that. Yeah, then you have some favorites, you have some great researchers like Tessarin and so on that lay it out yet again in a different way. Of course, I see it in this way, at least you always yourself have to differentiate out because also every author and so on, you know, they can have their own issues or slight distortions. But those that really get through, they seem to get through. And then after some point, I just realized just like with the esoteric parts of the religions, same with the re I was about to say real philosophers, you know, um, they all come up with the same thing, you know, as simple as that. I wouldn't even know how to define it exactly, but what's certainly obvious is that across all time and space, even with the few fragments of information that we have, there have always been those that in a sense, I want to say held the torch high. And that is the recognition ultimately, yeah, of the holographic nature of the universe and that there is perennial philosophy because there also appears to be somewhat of a perennial structure within which, of course, everything is always changing. Yeah, well said. That was good. Um, also, um, I want to pick up what you said uh, about Thoreau, and I think that's a that's a great starting point as well. That's the thing with, with all of this. The starting points are myriad. You know, you could come into it in so right. many different so many different places um but i think thoreau and then emerson as well that whole um that whole sort of school of it gets called america uh, american transcendentalism um although emerson himself didn't like this name transcendentalism he preferred to just call it uh idealism um and then you look into his his own background where he's coming where he gets into these ideas uh and th this is this is the point that i i want to make sort of the big point is we should continually whatever we're reading or whatever we're watching or whatever um we should always go back and examine where do the ideas within this book or this movie or whatever it is where do they come from you know and so with emerson you you look into his uh, his own development as a as a philosopher and as a poet, and he he gets turned on to these ideas from Thomas Taylor, 
who was an Indian, uh, sorry, an, uh, an English uh, Neoplatonist, or he, he's he's always called Thomas Taylor the uh, the Platonist, um, and basically he's the he's the Ficino of uh, of the early Romantic period, like the the late seventeen hundreds, early eighteen hundreds, and he ends up translating all the Hermetic writings and a lot of the Neoplatonic writings into English for the first time. Uh, before that, they had been translated uh, previously by Ficino into Latin, and, and maybe there were other translations in other language, languages. But he was one of the first, uh, he was the, the first to translate these um, texts into English. And so that was a huge inspiration for the early Romantic movement, including Blake, you know, Blake and, and and Coleridge and then uh, and then Shelley Keats and then and then Emerson picks it up and the transcendentalists pick it up in the states and so so again that's that's an excellent starting point you know it's like uh, um, not, I, I don't I don't mean to say starting point in the sense that uh, Emerson's or or Thoreau's any more elementary I, I just mean uh, an access point relatable probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. An access point, a point of like a, a door into the into the mysteries. Um, but uh, I think I think that's a that's a tradition that that more people, especially Americans, I don't know why they don't look into that more. You know, um, because that that is the American tradition in a way. That is the American mysteries. Um, so I, I would say everybody should be looking into Thoreau, especially Americans. Everybody should be looking into Emerson and Thoreau and those guys. Completely agreed. Jim, no, I just want to ask, have you read any of Thoreau or anything that would be called a perennial philosophy? And I love your statement in terms of, you know, that's always the good question. What is the real tradition? What has been the most recent resets? I just looked up Thoreau. According to official timeline, he died in 1862. So, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I think I did the... I'm a Gemini, right? So I'm pretty distractible. So I think I looked into him and I said, oh, I love what these guys are talking about, but I don't have the patience to read it. And whenever we're back in high school, I should check it out. I'm sure I have Walden Pond sitting on a shelf, you know, or something like that. Um, distractibility is my Achilles heel. I do have Chiron in Gemini with my same moon. So uh, I can be my own worst enemy to the degree that I run around. You know, I'm in Blockbuster looking at all the boxes and I'm not actually watching the movie. I'm just reading the boxes. Going, oh, that sounds cool. Cool. Okay. Cool. cool. Uh, Eternal peruser, perennial peruser, <laughs> I guess you could say. But um, it's funny because even how you guys are talking about it, it it's like, I mean, the, uh, it's the sine wave, right? I mean, and, the wave is always there, but different like levels of the wave happen. So sometimes it's more like you were talking about in Egypt. It was like readily known and uh, readily uh, acted upon. These these probably uh, eternal truths, right? Repeating truths, uh, and then other times you know, you're going to get burned to the stake if you talk about this shit. So it seems like we're popping in, and I I don't want to be too idealistic, though I'm an ENFP and that is the idealist. Um, I think we're going into a time when, and especially with the North Node and Gemini, we're able to uh, conjunct my moon right now. Actually, um, we're able to ask questions without getting burned to the stake. But then the question in the postmodern dilemma is: What is believable in terms of authority? 
kind of harkening back to the whole hiccup of the um, Renaissance, uh, you know, they got inspired, like you were saying, um, the Romantics got inspired by kind of a, a reinterpretation of other texts, and they're like, hell yeah, it gave us fresh blood, right? Um, which is good at a Machiavellian level, where it's like it serves a function, but like how much truth is it rooted in sometimes can be very questionable, uh, it seems, if that makes any sense. Just to, and I'm sorry to just kind of go sideways here, maybe a bit, but since I've been looking up Thoreau and just was like, as you said, you like it, I'm like, okay, what can I read out of this? And just one sentence, which also immediately makes the whole thing, for me at least, incredibly practical. And as we talked about on the podcast, also for me at least, in line again with Jesus and all of those kind of guys. So he writes about, uh, let's say, the evolution of governmental systems and Emperor he writes Kurt. keep going yeah there will never be a really free and enlightened state until the state comes to recognize the individual as a higher and independent power from which all its power and authority are derived and treats him accordingly well <laughs> Sounds like the yeah. road to heaven, ultimately. Go ahead, Zner. Uh, great quote. Yeah, it. This is. I. I think this is the big key. You know, is. Um, and this goes back to what Jim was saying, also about authority. You know, um, so this is sort of the big maybe reform of this mystery tradition that we're looking at, if we want to call it that. Um, so, of course, in the. If we, if we go right back to e Egypt, um, for thousands of years, you had the pharaoh as t ultimate um, lord and god of the realm, you know. Um, and it was a completely hierarchical society centered on the pharaoh. Um, obviously, it worked because it lasted for thousands of years, but the people weren't exactly free in this system, you know. Um, and you could argue even the pharaoh wasn't free. He was he was a slave Sound to the structure. Duty. Yeah, yeah, slave to the structure of it. The same as everybody else, the citizens included. Um, and so, what's happened though is, I think there's an understanding, and I don't know where this enters in. Like I'm talking about the uh, sort of, uh, if you want to call it the esoteric. Um, tradition of the West, there's this sort of understanding in maybe the secret societies or whatever, the point that Raphael was making from Thoreau is that it can no longer be bound to this hierarchy, hierarchical system. It has to come down to the individual. And so the whole thing becomes uh, democratized. Um, and it might be that this comes in um, through connection of the Europeans with tribal societies um, because of colonialism. So, so Americans um, encountering native societies, you know, Native American societies, which weren't um, hierarchically based, and yet they're still living the mysteries, you know, the open mysteries like we were saying before, you know. Um, so I think there's this understanding that we can go earlier than Egypt back even further um, to Neolithic period, even the uh, even the Paleolithic period, where the, there was this sort of, um, it gets called also a democratic shamanism, 
where everybody is potentially a shaman. Um, and so I think this re-enters into the stream um, along, like, who knows? I think, like, like I was saying, after, uh, again, after contact with uh, more so-called primitive societies or tribal societies, and then um, which go on to directly inspire first the American Revolution and then later on the French Revolution and then all these sort of subsequent revolutionary uh, um, experiments, if you want to call it that. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm just interested what what you'd think about that. Well, I, I think, so number one, the idea that it could be related to the contact and again with the whole Tartaria and Risa thing, it gets really muddy really fast as to what happened in my view. So I'm really... So are you familiar with the Tartaria uh, idea? Yeah, that, yeah. yeah, I came across... Um, uh, what's what's the author's the famous uh, Russian author's uh, Fomenko? Yeah, Fomenko. I came across Fomenko's book like uh, I can't remember, like about fifteen years ago in a, in a used bookstore, and uh, I didn't buy it, which I regret not doing. But I I, I stayed there and read a, a bunch of it while I was just in the shop, <laughs> and I was fascinated by it. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know what to say about that. Like um, for me. So for me, I just, I, I take, uh, I, I don't complicate things by, uh, it, I, I, sorry, I don't mean to dismiss his theory or similar theories, um, but I don't think things need to be needlessly complicated. You know, if, if I just stick to standard history, um, it's fascinating enough. It blows me away enough. You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't need, uh, it's not that I'm not open to that, and it, it's possible that, um, yeah, that does affect everything. Um, but uh, I'm not sure if it fundamentally affects what we're talking about, which is which is right. if uh, perennial philosophy. Um, right. I mean, that with perennial philosophy, especially, it's uh, that's that's a good point. Although, of course, this would also propose, just on a grander scale, a potential hidden conflict. Let's say maybe also between those forces we've been discussing, which would include a cover-up of a potential much more prominent position of perennial philosophy as, you know, I'm making a grand proposition now and maybe glorifying this. Um, but for example, that uh, Tartarian Empire, whatever this is, or Federation, may have had a different view on individualism, individual sovereignty, and all kinds of things. I really can say... Uh, well, I guess we'll find out. Um, I'm looking forward to that. And in terms of your question, so number one, the relation with so-called native societies and seeing their structure of organization, that would make perfect sense, you know, seeing it on, as face value, that then this gets kind of reintroduced into, let's say, the machine of Western civilization. However, I'm not exactly sure to what extent those contribute to revolutions such as you mentioned the french revolution the very little i know about it so i actually read what's his name um uh, tocqueville who was as i understand number one writing about the french revolution and also writing about democracy in america which i think he even then he was complaining about actually as far as i remember also here there's then you know considerations did he tell the truth on everything this and that but simply put, in terms of Paris and, and French Revolution, what I understand is that this was 
not really a revolution towards individual sovereignty, but even the way Tocqueville describes it was more a coup against an established aristocracy. And I don't know about the motives of all involved, but it smells kind of like so many other revolutions. It was at the very least co-opted or hijacked because as I understand, many people died. And I'm not sure if they like really had the best model, even if they have nice slogans. I think I think you see what I'm saying. So basically, maybe making a proposition that this will be a, an evolution and in a sense, positively devolving power back to individuals, however, may ultimately then be co-opted and be even more collectivist than before in its actual effect because of this hijacking. Cuba, I Russia. think you catch my drift. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, ru yeah Russia. Yeah, good. <laughs> no, no. I, yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, like um, Liberté this... Fraternité sounds good on paper, but guillotines really happened or whatever. Well, this this gets back to what we were talking about earlier um, with uh, Blake's orc cycle and the orc cycle that he was talking about, where where orc overthrows your reason. Your reason is your reason. Um, so it overthrows your risen and then becomes the 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 new urizen, the new tyrant himself. Um, that's those are his reflections actually on the French Revolution, which ends up with Napoleon, right? It ends up with the empire. Um, so yeah, of course that happens all the time, and that's I, I don't know. I don't know if that's inevitable or that's kind of a, a hiccup in the system <laughs> before, like Blake also thought or, uh, an actual revolution would be possible, but um, an actual revolution would have to be united with revelation, you know, sort of a mass revelation of things. Um, but what Much I was saying... Buddhist approach, or maybe even Darcy Egyptian. Everybody, like, front row like, seats. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. The same same idea as uh, democratic shamanism, which uh, I mentioned before. But what I meant by this sort of um, connection with Native American societies, especially on on the revolution, on the American Revolution, that's pretty well documented. You know, you have the uh, the Iroquois um, Confederacy, which directly sort of influenced. Um, the ideas of the founding fathers on an American type federation, and then those ideas afterwards were transmitted to to, to France um, directly by people like um, Benjamin Franklin and, and Thomas Paine, etc. You know, um, and then and then beyond that, in the French Revolution, you have you you do have the work of uh, secret societies, um, so called. Um, who were revolutionary, genuinely revolutionary, and genuinely did care about um, liberty and fraternity and equality. I mean, by that, do you mean like the Freemasons? Yeah, um, Freemason. There's all kinds of groups. Like even even the Illuminati uh, pop up there, like the original form of the Illuminati, um, and it. <laughs> Like uh, Illuminati is sort of a taboo word. You don't want to say that you support the Illuminati because people You're have not going to scare us. <laughs> people the question have a is always idea. Yeah, they people have ideas, and it's always a matter of time, space, coordinate, and that as so often rarely structures are monolithic. But please explain. I have an inkling where you get what you're getting at. Yeah. So the the uh, the original Illuminati, so-called Illuminati, started in uh, Bavaria. Um, and they started in 1776, the same same year as the American Revolution. Um, and 
and their idea their idea basically was to overthrow the religious authority and the monarchies of Europe um, and at, at that time you know it's like uh, those were pretty terrible corrupt institutions <laughs> you know so so they did play a role in the uh, in the French Revolution um, I don't know how direct of a role they played but uh, definitely through influence of other like Freemasonic organizations um, etc um, so I think well, like I, the, the Gnostic what, what claim I, what I meant, is like the inner mounting claim of Buddhism. I mean, I think they got that. They're like, you're a sovereign being and this matters and, and rise. But then that can get co-opted. I mean, just like anything. It gets, there's no pure idealism in a sense, right? And the pure idealists are the first ones who get hijacked. And then the, uh, you know, it's like in an animal farm, right? Like there's a good idea and then it gets fucked up real quick because of, selfish interests and then you know all of a sudden the farm that they were on doesn't seem nearly as bad as the false dystopian you know shattered idealism that they've inherited or whatever i don't mean to cut you off but it, it seems like that's uh one thing that the secret societies were kind of pushing where it's like you have this gnostic flame this intermounting flame in kind of a eastern tradition and that thing is cultivate that uh through whatever means and quick aside, uh, one thing that came to mind about American Revolution, what we grokked from uh, natives, besides the Iroquois League of Nations, which was a good call, that really did influence us more than we probably realized, quite frankly. It might be much more Tartarian than we realized, Raphael, quite frankly. But um, uh, guerrilla warfare, like before the fr American Just Revolution. Just as you mentioned this very, very briefly, Jim, I believe there is like letters or something. I think it's Benjamin Franklin, and we'll ask someone who can give you the proper reference, just in terms of you know, mainline, well-documented history. And there are passages which kind of allude to the idea that, yeah, we basically imported all kinds of ideas and ideologies from Tartaria, actually. And this would give another spin also to the whole Eagle Phoenix idea. And yeah, but there's so much convoluted there. It's sometimes difficult to dissect. Please continue, Jim. Tibetan and, and Egyptian books of the dead. It seems, and this gets, I, I was even going to ask Nor, um, I, while I was saying with the American Revolution, uh, was that guerrilla warfare? I mean, for a long time, for whatever, hundreds of years, people lined up in a line and shot at each other. And we saw that, like, you know, <laughs> Iroquois weren't doing that. They were kind of going behind trees and doing crazy shit. And so that's essentially one of the tactics that led to our winning our sovereignty from Britain. But um, uh, I cut off you, Snor. Go Keep going. If you, uh, I forgot what you, I was saying. Even. Um, no, so my bigger point here in talking about this is just to go back to uh, um, uh, what Raphael uh, quoted from Thoreau, like this idea of the individual and the individual being the center of the mysteries like as opposed to, yeah, as opposed to these sort of grand hierarchical structures. Um, and this is, this is the big question. Um, and it's a question that arises in... Uh, so-called traditionalism. We have people like uh, uh, Rene Guénon and uh, and Evola, who's even more Julius Evola, who's even more controversial. Um, and this idea that in order to get back to the mysteries, we've got to get back to traditional societies, and traditional societies are hierarchical. Um, they're based on a based on a sovereign um, and if if we if we uh if we go back to what we're saying about uh sun worship 
the sovereign directly is the representative of the sun and the rays of the sun, the sort of esoteric rays of the sun sort of filter, filter down through the entire hierarchy to the rest of the people. And so you, you find a similar idea in Confucianism in, in China. And one idea is that the emperor of China, all he has to do is sit in his throne and face south. And if he does that, That's which, is, which is ritualistically perfect, if he does that, everything falls in line throughout the entire kingdom and everything works in sync. And it did, like in places like China and in places like Egypt, that that kind of system uh, worked, you know, and it, it lasted for, for a long time. Um, but the question is, uh, can we get back even further back to a sort of more uh, primitive way of looking at things where the mysteries are based on the individual, you know? And what I was saying is I think when we look at Thoreau or Emerson, and these guys have been inspired by Native society and the American Revolution, etc. Um, I think those ideas re-enter into the stream at that time, and there is that possibility. I believe that there is that possibility. We don't need to go back to a traditional society um, in, in, in terms of a hierarchical society. We can have a, like I keep saying, a democratic shamanism, uh, uh, a, uh, a society, a horizontal society of, of singular revolutionary visionaries, you know. Um, and I think the modern age has been sort of, I don't know if it's been incrementally getting to that point, uh, a lot of hiccuping moments where you have a revolution and then the orc cycle takes over again and, and it just becomes worse um, and so it goes a few steps back it's like a, a retrogression or something um, but then I, I think it continues on like that I think uh, eventually it reaches a point where it is centered again in the in the individual um, but that's that's my own that's my own idealism uh, I'd like to hear your what you think on that it's 100% right. I mean, the sine wave is coming to mind just a lot. We just talked to Kaipasha Lesher, who's an astrologer, um, the guy who turned me on to astrology like seven years ago, basically. But um, the sine wave, right? That's the, that's the perennial thing. I mean, everything's a sine wave. So at times, there is a hierarchical structure that meets the needs of the Tao so perfectly that a guy could sit and face south and it works. And there's a time when you you know you need to have somebody so individualized that you have an Akhenaten or a Donald Trump or whatever tweeting whatever he thinks, right? Where it's like it goes totally different to the thing, and the needs of the Dow shift. I think so. It's kind of paradoxical. On the one hand, it's like same as it ever was. Like there's this like infinite linearity to to consciousness, if you want to put it that way. That the Egyptians kind of grokked, but then. At the same time, you know, the wave is real, but the particle, right? So it's like, it's got punctuative uh, flow to it. It seems like, you know, cycles. That's the whole point of the yugas and everything like that. So what might work, you know, kind of like you were talking about the idiots, like wearing, you know, a bathing suit in the winter of Russia doesn't work. But, you know, wearing a bathing suit in Hawaii does work. What's the difference? Your location. And instead of talking about a geographic location, we're talking about like, like a time wave zero kind of location, right? A novelty slash consciousness location um so there's in a weird way frank zeps there's, there's always a market for everything or uh you know anything 
like um you know you're in japan people sell like you know octopuses and machines and used underwear and all sorts of crazy shit right um not everybody's doing that but it, it works to some people uh same thing happens with this kind of thing we're talking about i think at times there's people you know this is the weird thing and i guess this gets into bashar Raphael really quick it's like when people have internal conscious or unconscious preference where they're like i need more stability they're going to need an emperor and if people are more like i need to be the emperor they're going to be more rebellious and like independent and it seems like um you know how there's like a homeostatic like amount of water on earth at all times or something so i've been told uh, it seems like everything is always in equal, in, in harmony, like very Taoist. It's always perfect, but the nature of the conditions of the weather, depending on where you're focusing on the hologram, the needs are different, the preferences are different, the trajectories are different, um, but we're all kind of flowing together in the river. But that's my two cents, as illiterate as that can be. Um, that's great. Uh, one thing I wanted to add is that, yeah, I've, I've been living in Japan for a while now. I've never come across these vending machines with used underwear and I'm always disappointed See, the about that. Me up. <laughs> <laughs> are these, where are these I machines? saw Conan O'Brien he was in um, Shibuki or something like that some district in downtown Tokyo and it's like they had literally um, oh it was so bizarre they had Kabuki people who had written um, written notes for like adult titles I'll find the clip and show it to you but it's like the weirdest thing it's like it's 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 weird. It's like comic book man from Simpsons. Like if he wrote something and put it in a vending machine and you bought it, it's like a little note from him. It just doesn't make. It was like cool, but it was also very bizarre. Um, I yeah. That, 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 go ahead. Oh, sorry. That's the thing about Japan is like uh, um, it looks a lot weirder on the outside than it does on the inside. I think maybe maybe that's the case with a lot of things. But uh, <laughs> you you right. come here, it's it's very very normal. <laughs> Right, Egypt too... looked fucking weird to Crete, and, or you know, <laughs> yeah. normal to Crete, and Crete was like, "Hey, give this to Greece," and Greece was like, "This is fucking bizarre, but we'll keep it." I mean, the DL. just like Jim, I'm sure someone could make a documentary about New York or any like huge city in America, and bring out the craziest Niche. spots and then show it and be like, "Oh my god, like this is America, yeah, right, like almost, you know." Right. Let's take a quick music but, break. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, no, I go ahead. I, I just want to get back to. Uh, after we do that, I'll get back to you, uh, what you're saying, which I thought I thought was great. Um, just the different phases of of I don't know what we want to call it, history or its tradition, or yeah. Okay, right. we'll come back to that. So yeah, we can jump in, and it's funny. I picked this song for two reasons. A well, three reasons. Air is the band, and it stands for a more imagined rev, which is kind of idealistic stuff, right? Dream and imagine and love. Um, Air is a great band. They did dream. Uh, uh, dream what did i say i forget um but uh they've done sofia coppola's version suicide soundtrack they did a lot of cool shit they're one of my favorite kind of duos from paris ironically um they're on this album pocket symphony they had decided to use a koto which is a traditional japanese instrument which i thought was cool and obviously you're in japan and then at the same time this song is called uh i forget what's called like this is one hell of a party or something like that and that's kind of how we're probably going to look back on Carnation, <laughs> Incarnation and uh, say, wow, what the fuck? That was kind of crazy. We did that. So enjoy. Welcome back. I don't know about y'all, but there were so many lyrics that were popping with what we're talking about. Where it's like, oh shit, it's all in his head. And history's hangover and the karma of our, you know, whatever. And we're just trying to like 
find this Zen piece and all these cycles. Anyway, I heard that with very different ears than I would have had we not had this conversation already. Um, but that was where my head was at. So, Znora, what were you going to uh, crack into? Um, yeah, so getting back into what you were saying about, uh, I'm going to call them phases, uh, sort, sort of different historical phases that um, that we get into. Um, and there's an interesting book on this. This is from uh, Yates, W.B. Yates, uh, and it's called A Vision. And it's basically a channeled text. Um, he and his wife performed uh, automatic writing, and there's an indication that they were using sex magic as well. And that, uh, um, anyways, he 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 produced this whole. It, it it's it it was notebook after notebook. I forget how many pages of text, like thousands, I think, and then. Um, refined into this um, two versions of the a vision that came out um, so it's really worth reading this um, if you guys haven't but he's talking about phases like you said um, how things change and he's basically using uh, the moon cycle as a uh, as a sort of model for this right and so with the, the moon cycle you have the uh, the full moon and then you have the dark moon and uh, so 28, uh, 28 days to this, and in Yates' system, there's 28 different phases. Um, and so on either extreme, either the dark moon or the full moon, you have, um, Yates called these extremes beyond the human, like they're, they're too extreme so that they're, they're sort of outside of the, the human scope almost. Um, but the extremes are basically, uh, pure individualism you could call it that and then pure uh collective like this sense of complete oneness um and then the other side like i say it's it's more um singularities you know it's uh but either extreme is is kind of off limits it's it's kind of like uh we get to that point but then we we quickly move move beyond it around the circle um so Yates thought of this um, again, sort of in a fractal way. Um, obviously, he's he's writing way before people knew about fractals. But um, so he would consider these phases happening happening in an individual life, and also a person when they're born, uh, they're one of the numbers in this phase, uh, in this in this circle of phases. And then uh, usually uh, Yates believed in, in reincarnation as well. So we would be reborn maybe as another another number within the phase, uh, within the cycle. Um, and so it, it applies to the individual, but it also uh, applies to history. And so he made um, these kind of maps of history. Um, and so essentially what he's tracking is the, the phase the phase shifts of the spirit or the world soul, maybe. Um, so he considered that we were reaching, we as a civilization were reaching uh, this point of complete collectivization. But as it reaches the peak, then the next sort of uh, movement has already begun, which is a movement away from that to a more sort of 
uh, individu individualistic, he, he would even call it ar aristocratic um, movement that was happening. Um, but what can happen with the individual is the individual um, can be born as, as one of these 28 um, numbers, okay? And the personalities change closer to the poles, the dark and the new moon. Um, so you could be born as a, a Yeats considered himself as a, as a sort of 17, which is closer to, uh, closer to the, the individualistic side of things. Um, but you could be born out of phase with, um, with that of your civilization. Um, so I, I often feel like that myself. It's like, uh, I'm, I'm out of phase, you know, and not, uh, I, I don't fit into, uh, to the current civilization. Like for one, I, I like to read books, you know, like actual physical printed books instead of, um, I try, I, I try to stay away from, uh, I, I try to stay away from computers. I don't succeed in it, you know, but, uh, I, I, I feel out of phase in that way. Um, but, uh, just to get back to the idiot, it's, it's a similar thing. Um, so the idiot as a character in Dostoevsky's novel is, is a version of Christ out of phase with the rest of history. Um, so imagine if it would be the same as if Christ appeared now in our society, like the, the, the sort of the common cliche about it would be, he would be arrested and locked up, probably put into a, an Christ asylum right away. Christ was kind of yeah. out of phase even in his time, wasn't he? <laughs> um, yes, although he was, he was eventually successful with it, you know, but uh, yeah, you're, you're right. Um, um, so yeah, with, with Yeats, what he would say about Christ is that, uh, that is the start of this kind of, uh, Christian phase, uh, a Christian cycle basically, um, which, uh, culminated, uh, in the, in the middle ages where it became, uh, sort of total, totalizing. And then from the Renaissance on, it's becoming, uh, uh, it's becoming less collectivistic, more individualistic. Afterwards, though, um, you have scientific materialism, which uh, again sort of uh, brings us back to a more collectivistic mindset. Um, so, like you said, Jim, it's it's a sine wave or a, or a moon cycle or or however you want to define this. Um, the worst part is it seems. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I just wanted to say that Yeats is, um, he, he's not taking this literally. He's not, he's not proposing this as a new astrology or anything. It's just, it's, it's, it's one way, a sort of uh, metaphoric system, one way of looking at things and sort of mapping out things. I'm way okay with it. Um, it, it reminds me of Terence McKenna's novelty, you know, time wave stuff. It reminds me of the I Ching quite a bit in a way. Yeah, um, McKenna's, McKenna's, McKenna's definitely influenced by, by Yeats. That's a better way to put it, actually, good call. Um, yeah, McKenna is definitely jamming on that uh, theme. Um, in a sense, what I'm starting to realize, and this is kind of freaky, but it's beautiful, um, there's, and Raphael will laugh, he goes, but of course, because, you know, he says this shit, he knows this already, but I'm like, I know it, but I forgot it, and it's remembering, kind of. Every, you know, it's not one big cycle, uh, let's put it this way, there's not a, to a totalizing cycle. What the funny part about the fractal kind of reality is, it's like, 
you know, your cat might be going through a certain cycle as well as like the government of Japan, as well as a certain sect of the people in that section. See what I'm saying? It's like there's, uh, you know, in Ezekiel's like wheels within wheels, there's lunar cycles in the Yates model uh, within lunar cycles within lunar. It's like it's infinitely fractal. Um, And some, you know, the whole point of the chemistry of archetypes in a physical sense would be kind of how atoms and molecules kind of bounce off each other or whatever the model is now. I'm not even sure. Uh, the static quantumness or whatever. Uh, it seems that it's just, it's it's hard because I think in order to try to make sense of reality, we try to put a word on it. The emperor, right? He's trying to concretize reality. The emperor card is trying to create boundaries and say this, you know, like the Lion King. It's like, Simba, this is all ours, whatever the sun touches, sun worship, right? In the sense. He's like, what about that other part? He's like, don't go over there. We don't even fuck with that. That's actually where the, you know, the Tibetan <laughs> shamans are, you know, freaking out for months at a time or whatever. I'm kind of mashing all, all these analogies. But the point is the emperor card energy is, it's a, like you're saying, a full moon energy, we'll just say. I don't know his exact model, but it's like that purity can't even be grokked or expressed by humans fully, but we phase through it in many little ways. And when a lot of people phase through it together in the same kind of synchronistic way, you know, in a synchronized way, um, you get empires, right? And that's, you get feudal states in Japan or states in America or, you know, members of the EU or whatever. You see what I'm saying? And it's funny because I think we're starting to dilate out. And ultimately, we were just talking with Kaipacha, and he said, you know, the whole point is to love it all. Like, once we could start holding on loosely enough to say, holy shit, I am an infinite amount of patterns ripping through an infinite amount of processes all correlating with other people and objects and you know histories doing the same kind of thing you all you can do uh, well you have two options you either go mad basically it can either overwhelm you or you can like be moved to you know holiness or something where you're just like in a state of awe i guess kind of like uh in the fountain hugh jackman's kind of face where he's like oh like that's kind of the i think that's the ecstatic um and I'm not sure what the deciding factor on it is, but my I'm willing at this point. The problem is my ego is trying to make sense of it, but the point of what we're all kind of getting at, um, even in that song I was singing, it's like uh, we were having this great time, full moon party, everything's awesome, but like uh, it's not going to stay. It's the morning after. It's a black moon. Like we're going through the phases. I guess where I'm at now is trying to function well. I don't know how much influence we have on this. Raphael, I think, would be under the impression we have a great amount of influence in terms of resetting and calibrating the cycles we find ourselves in. Some people are more deterministic. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I'll let you go, Raphael, because I'd like to hear that too. You know what? I just asked the question we've been discussing previously, separation or no. And for me, you know, I take the... Well, that's the full moon and the, the uh, new moon, right? Separation or, or total unity, right? Yeah, and it can be seen as a spectrum, but to me, it's just perfectly logical that if we understand that all those priest classes, you know, told you always you're separate because of all kind of, you know, manipulative motives and so on, and we listen to the transcendentalists that tell us that we are not separate and that it's holographic or however you want to put it, then I'm asking who can actually actually really can have any effect upon reality other than the individual. And anyhow, I guess we know, you know, it is said the state is nothing but a collection of individuals. 
So, of course, again, we are back to the hard grind in the sense of individual awareness and uh, deconditioning and so on. But that's kind of the level where I see us playing on. And I'm certainly of the view that whilst it may seem and everything is made to appear as if you had no effect, the more you look into it, the more you may actually be horrified by how much effect you actually do have, each and every one individually, right? How much responsibility, therefore, but also how much creative capacity to simply choose differently as well. And I guess I always see that because that's kind of the process I came here to witness. But I would certainly say it has never been as accelerated as now. The potential for these kind of shifts to happen both individually and collectively. So briefly put, we have all the power. We just have been conditioned to believe we don't have any. And that's a very simple trick. We got yeah, because yeah. I, I, I would. Go ahead. Uh, sorry, man. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say it gets tricky because I think it goes in phases. So sometimes it's like we need, like Atlantis fell because people fucked up the po individual power, according to some myths, right? Or, you know, Yates is like, I'm a 17. Is that him disempowering himself? Or is that him knowing his nature well? <laughs> is that a preference that is sta stable? Is that a preference that will change? Um, anyway, I'm rambling, but go ahead, Zanor. Um, yeah, I was just going to say I, I completely agree with what Raphael said. Um like even if we look at uh like i've i've, I've got um henry cornelius agrippa's book uh the three books of occult philosophy this also came out in the renaissance and so the book one is is natural magic um working with the elements basically the the sort of the earthbound elements what we naturally think as uh, of magic um and then celestial magic um gets more into astrology and then ceremonial magic and this is something that uh comes up with the hermetic order the golden dawn uh, ceremonial mag magicians and then crowley's school kind of branching off of that um going beyond astrology even to realms of angels and demons um etc and moving beyond the determinism of the stars but one thing that crowley leaves out um and uh a lot of the ceremonial occult tradition in modern times leaves out is that agrippa if you read the end of this book the end of the third book he's saying the highest level of this is is christ um so christ is the understanding christ is the the exact in an esoteric sense he's the, the exact union of uh spirit and matter and he's the door beyond determinism uh beyond beyond even celestial determinism or astrological determinism um so then we have to look at what is christ and then if you if you read blake and blake carries on this directly like he, he gets a lot of his ideas on the imagination directly from Paracelsus is connected to Agrippa and uh, uh, Jacob Bema and Swedenborg. Um, his conclusion is, uh, Blake's conclusion is Jesus is the imagination. So we get back to the same point we were right. making before. Um, so how do you get beyond these deterministic structures, whether they're secular structures like earthbound 
structures of the state and the economy and the banks or whatever like that that, that level or even time or, or or higher levels of of the priesthoods or even higher levels than that of the uh, of the stars and the planets you know um, how do you get beyond that it's with your own imagination and and they uh, it's not it's not really a new idea you can find this in the in the corpus hermeticum it's like uh, we have the ability to um, to know the mind of God and what is the mind of God the mind of God is to be simultaneously in every point at once every point in time every point in space and <laughs> no limits basically and that's our imagination you know that's the uh, that's how we were born in the image of God image of God means the imagination of God you know um, so uh, yeah they, I, I, I totally agree with uh, what Raphael said you know it's like I think um, the uh, the sort of primitive viewpoint that we've been talking about, even going way back, like the Paleolithic viewpoint, is that you know, um, right. uh, we have complete freedom in the imagination. Damn. Damn, I wish we would remember. I'm sitting here being like, see, in my most more lucid times, especially when I was doing more psychedelics, I would remember this. Like it felt natural. I'm like, oh shit. And we could hack and we could do all this stuff. And then there's, I guess, I mean, I don't want to have to depend on artificial kind of insemination through psychedelics all the time, but like that mind of Christ or however you want to put it. Oh, that's all like, within oh, you anyhow, Jim. Well, that's <laughs> don't the worry. paradox that fucks me up the most where it's like, look, remember that it's all you, but then, then you look around and you go, why am I dreaming it this way? Uh, great point. Which is the horror, where it's like, I've talked about this when COVID started popping and, uh, you know, the elections were going crazy with Raphael. Um, you know, I was like, if this is all me, because solipsism is always something that, it, it's like, there's a thin line between, you know, solipsism and like, you know, unity consciousness, I guess you could say, right? Um, very thin line where it's like, it's all me and, and retaining individualism versus like, it's all me and you are me and there is no, you, you know, like that kind of is a narcissistic bent in my mind. Um, I'd like you to, and, in my mind, uh, kind of like in Tom Cruise's Vanilla Sky, at the very end, you know, it's like the doctor's like, it's, it's this is all inside your head, and you're having to wake up to get out of, bio, you know, cryogenic freezing or whatever. Um, I don't, I would like you guys to be more real than my need for to participate with you at a an egoic level that's narcissistic. You see what I'm saying? Like, I, the world is so beautiful and complicated and awesome that I want sovereignty of others to be actual, not imaginary, if that makes any sense. Um, um, there's a, uh, I think there's a problem with solipsism because usually when people think of solipsism, they think of it in terms of the ego, right? And so it's, um, well, that's it's I'm my, sure. it's, it's my ego that is the world, you know, and that, um, everything that I see is a reflection of my ego. Um, but that's not, um, that's not the understanding of, of Atman is Brahman, for example, you know? Um, it's not it's not your ego that is everything it's it's your higher self that's everything and this is something that's reflected in Jung's writing he he's uh, at one point I forget which book it might be in uh, psychology and alchemy and he's saying um, where are the limits of the unconscious uh, the unconscious mind um, and he's saying there are no limits we can't we can't determine any limits um, so the unconscious mind is is the collective unconscious as well, um, 
but collective not in the sense in the negative sense that we're we're sort of uh controlled and dominated by the the collectivity it just means that we're all part of this this higher mind or this higher imagination um and so if we get really deep into into the psychology um we get beyond the conscious ego and we get to the unconscious we look for the limits of the unconscious and it transcends or it goes beyond ourselves you know our 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 sense of self um to 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 something else you know um so i i think i think solipsism this idea of solipsism is a uh, is kind of a false start you know well, it's definitely a tainted version of what I'm talking about, which is definitely more egoic. That's why I'm afraid of it in a weird way. Because uh, in Gene Keys, again, comprehension. Yeah, well, I'm a Gemini. I mean, I don't want to be too excusing of it. It's like I'm a naive kid asking all the questions, and I'm you know barely sitting down in the chair. Whereas Snore, clearly, you're like in the library for fun, <laughs> and Raphael seems to have done enough drugs or whatever <laughs> to crack, crack through or whatever. Right? Uh, he's remembering. just enough incarnation cycles, probably. You know, it's that's good. totally it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's honestly, I don't know, it's conversations like this and, and just kind of, even though it might not mean anything to anybody else, like this is the shit that I live for, where it's like, I'm not getting an answer. I'm just running around it enough that I'm getting an impression and that impression's enough to give me hope and the hope drives me further, if that makes sense. Cause there's times where it's just like, fuck money, fuck governments, uh, fuck you know, relationships, fuck, uh, you know, central nervous system, attached brain, material, you know, everything. Like, it can get very overwhelming at times, especially in these days where it's like, you know, big shifts are happening, clearly. Uh, whether it's, you know, from in monetary systems to uh, people's credulity towards government as being representative of reality. It is our reality, but now it's like this kind of clipote reality. It feels more and more, right? Where it's like the shell <laughs> nice, of the thing, right? right? Where it's like, this isn't what we want, but like we're stuck with it. Like uh, we tell ourselves we're stuck with it because the, the the momentum of the empire, the emperor card, you know, we have brainwashed ourselves enough over generations in many ways where you do get little flor, flor, uh, fluorescence of throws and um, Krishnamurtis or whatever. It seems like that pops and that's like for ultimate balance like if it didn't pop we'd be all, we'd be in real hell at that point i guess yeah, well, um, or it's the seed that's about to blossom you know and you know you can't really tell very small seedlings you don't see anything and a day later you have a completely new lawn you know <laughs> or whatever wildlife the weed that was this a seed at one point I, yeah i mean i've gardened before yeah but, the, the desert blooms you know that's uh um, all of a sudden, yeah, a rain rain falls, and then the the next day, it's just like a beautiful flowers everywhere. You know um, that idea. Yeah, it, it's 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 perfectly true. It's like it. Um, we could be on the verge of anything. You know, um, right. our doom or or transcendence, if you want to call it that word. I, I don't necessarily like that word transcendence because I think it's more imminent. You know, I think it's it's more something that's already here that we're not we're not realizing. So it's I don't know if I said this last time. Um, it's more of a kind of a, an epistemological move than an ontological move, a, a move in your state of mind more than a new world, you know, an escape from the world. Right. Um, well, like what you're kind of talking about once again is this Yates polism with like annihilation versus nirvana or something like that, right? And we're dancing on the middle. And I think 
this is it's weird because I, I definitely get hyped up in a lot of things, new age and otherwise, and um it's almost like that song. It's like this was one hell of a party, but I don't really remember it. All the faces are bleeding together. It didn't really mean anything any anyway. Like I guess Capacha kind of mentioned it. It's like if um if we're God, this is a weird way with how something heretical. I'm trying to get my head around how to say this, but if we're if consciousness is this ever expanding universe and all it is uh, in in its many varied forms, um, then annihilation nor nirvana are happening, and those are the the uh, the poles that can't be touched by the human mind and body or whatever like you were saying it's like there's certain tr domains we can't tread in though they exist in a platonic ideal form or something so i guess you could say there's the, the eternal void <laughs> and then there's the eternal fullness or you know or the full moon and the new moon kind of, or kind of analogy here and it seems like the middle path is i mean just, you know but the middle path is always reorienting itself that's the tricky part for me where it's like just stay in the middle know that you're both these things but like you see what I'm saying? You, now you you could hear the the uh, tortured soul nature of a Gemini Sun and Moon and Gemini and Chiron. It's like I am <laughs> my own worst fucking enemy. <laughs> well, no, I, I I agree with you completely. It's like the the middle path, which is emphasized in Buddhism, is also the what's called the watercourse way in Taoism, and and so the water as it runs, it always takes the easiest path. Um, but it's always moving. It's back and forth. It's never a straight line. You know, it's under objects, over objects, um, all over the place. So it's not. It's not as if the middle path is static. Um, so it, it, yeah, I, I completely agree with that that way of thinking about it. You know, you can't. Uh, there has to be an acceptance of the entire cycle. Um, and so this is something that happens within uh, within Buddhist philosophy, right? Like uh, in early early Buddhist philosophy, uh, Theravada Buddhism, um, the emphasis was on nirvana. And if, if you look at the, uh, the roots of that word, it, it means um, snuffing out as if, as if you're blowing out a candle, like blowing out or snuffing out. Um, so in a sense, uh, nirvana is annihilation. It's, it's complete. It's like, um, it's like when you go down and, and sleep every night, you forget the cares of the day. Um, but in Indian philosophy, <laughs> Indian philosophy had this idea of like, uh, t t you, you're reborn and you're caught in the, this wheel, this unending wheel of samsara all the time. And so, uh, you want to go to sleep. You want to, you want to die. Basically you want to kill yourself. Um, but you can't, you, you, you kill yourself. And according to Indian philosophy and a lot of other philosophy, you just come back into the cycle and you'd probably come back in a worse a worse uh, place because um, of the mindset that you were in when you actually took your own life. Um, so you can't do that. Um, so you have to go beyond that to, to sort of, it's like a, a spiritual suicide in a, in a certain way. Um, but uh, ultimate Jesus take the wheel. It's like whatever. Happens, yeah. A snuffing, a complete snuffing out, you know, but then later on uh, the move to Mahayana Buddhism is the realization that, that's not really what the Buddha meant at all by nirvana or or by awakening at least, right? Awakening is awakening to the entire cycle and the realization that samsara is nirvana. There's no differentiation between them. Um, 
And so the middle path then becomes like what you're saying is the understanding that uh, this entire cycle uh, of of phenomenon is the noumenon. You know, that's there's no there's no separation between the two. We're already living in the eternal right now. It's just a matter of of waking up to it. Um, so, so it's not yeah exactly what you said. It's not a matter of annihilation or trying to escape from the cycle. It's 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 living in the middle path and sort of weaving so like water through it. it. Yeah, and and just being aware of this of of the cycles. Like like you said also before, it's not just one cycle. It's cycle within cycle within cycle everywhere. Um, so if if you could affirm all of these cycles at once all the time, um, that's you it. Say, you know, identify with all the demons and all the angels. If you're sitting there going, yes, there's a time for Halloween. Yes, there's a time for whatever. Dears. It kind of reminds me of Narnia. If you, I just read this with my fiance. We're reading. We just finished uh, Fellowship of the Ring today, but we've been reading you know, all Harry Potter. In the Harry Potter film, it shows it really well where Voldemort and Harry kind of fuse into this one weird. I should take a screenshot of it and send it to you. It's like disturbing because you see like Voldemort screaming and Harry screaming and their faces fused into this morphed like oneness. And it's just like, what the fuck? It's very bizarre. It's like the ultimate like weird middle path. But anyway, in Narnia, um, you know, they're like, I mean, spoiler alert, they're like, oh, we all died in a train wreck. <laughs> and we're actually in eternity, but we're having to experience awakening to that fact through process. Yeah, the end of the end of that is incredible. Like the end of the uh, the last battle is amazing. Oh yeah, uh, I cry every time. I mean, I'm a Christian still, so I mean, I I love Raphael, and I know he's done a good job of making me realize how not to be religious. I guess is a good way. I never was much of that for that anyway, but it still seems to me like the epiphany is Christ. He's the philosopher's stone. I'm the one always quoting Jesus back to you. Just to sure, point sure, that out. sure. Yeah, you're not anti-Christ or anything like that. It's not like that. Um, it's just funny. I think people take things and it's 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 gnarly how distorted our attached mind, ego minds can get things. I mean, that's the whole tragedy with, you know, politics, religion, family dramas, right? It's like we just take things so fucking seriously, um, though they have their uh, value, independent value. So it's like, you know, everything has not, it's, it's such a paradox. Everything is one and it's all the same. Like you were saying, like the good guy is the bad guy is one. Like it's, it neutralizes, right? Like samsara is nirvana. Um, it's kind of another way to put that. But at the same time, like, you know, black is not white, is not green, is not red. Like the value differentiation seems to be what we've asked to experience at the fullest degree. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking of something when you were, when you were talking, but it uh, I, I spaced on the I have train a, of thought. I have that effect. I'm so sorry. I have this dissociative <laughs> effect on people, and I do it to myself clearly. Ultimate dispersion effect. Um, oh no! Uh, yeah, back to back to Christ. Um, so me too. I I I was brought up Christian. A Christian family, Pentecostal family, so really sort of extreme um, Protestant sect of Christianity, where they believed in the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, you know. And so I, I had all that, and then I, I came to kind of reject it or see through it. Um, but uh, but lately, especially going back to um, poets like Blake and stuff, and his idea of like I was saying, Jesus as the imagination, it takes it to a, a complete different level that is not 
religious. Like for Blake, for for instance, he didn't care about the literal existence of Christ. Like he didn't, to his mind, it wasn't important if Christ was a historical figure or not, you know. It's the bigger thing is is his mythical importance, right? Like Jesus as the imagination or as the alchemists, what, what they termed Jesus, he's the philosopher's stone, like the primal exactly. material. Um, he, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't want to say he, like, um, exclusively. The principle of Christ uh, transmutes all things, or however you want to put that. Yeah, the symbol of Christ, and he's, it's kind of the ultimate symbol, right? Is Christ represents the time before creation, you know? The, the, and that's what the Philosopher's Stone is. That's what they were trying to do. The alchemists were trying to um, go back to the Philosopher's Stone because that's where things separated. That's where the minerals separated from each other. So if we could get back to the material. original, like the yeah, the primal material. <laughs> so if we can get back to before the essence of lead and before the essence of gold, where they branch off from each other, then we, at that point, then we could branch off in, in a different way. And that, that's how we can transmute lead into gold or transmute yourself into a more uh, godly being or whatever, right? And so, so Christ then is, he's the symbol of that, you know? Um, so he's the symbol of, of the great chaos, basically, before creation, you know? The, in, in Egyptian mythology, the original mound of creation that first popped up um that was the first sort of manifestation of anything um and that's what christ is you know uh so if you think of it as that and as the imagination that's what your imagination is as well you know like that's uh um you can do these things in greater i mean it's like y'all imagine well yeah yeah i'll show you yeah. how to do it it's almost like tom bombadil in a weird way from Lord of the Rings, where it's like, look, he's just this untainted thing before fractalization through a negatively polarized yuga or whatever, if you however you want to term it. Yeah, Tom Bombadil, perfect. Like he, it's he's the perfect um, symbol or archetype or character um, that is truly beyond good and evil. Um, but not beyond good and evil in an evil sense, you know. He's beyond good and evil in the in the in the kind of Platonic sense of, of representing the good, uh, the the truth and the beautiful, you know. Um, and so that <laughs> that's the reason why Gandalf, the last thing that we see Gandalf do before he uh, sails into the West, is 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 have a long talk with Tom Bombadil, you know, because <laughs> Tom Bombadil is the only guy in the in the whole book, the whole series, he can. The ring has no effect on him. It's like a and joke can, to him. Yeah, yeah. He he can make the ring disappear, <laughs> you know. And they don't want to give him the ring because he'll just space on it. He'll just lose it somewhere. Well, it's like a fool card, right? Once again, <laughs> yeah. it's like, yo, if you give the fool the the, the ring, like the uh, you know the emperor card or the magician card or the fucking you know whatever uh, hanged man, none of these have the same value anymore. Uh, because you know, in order, it's almost like in the Matrix. It's like it's so weird because it gets into. I mean, I think Buddhism does a good job of this, but I guess everything does in its own way. If you enter, if you enter, uh, if you've watched Harry Potter or read the books, um, there's something called, um, oh, I forget what it's called, but it's like this little dish where you can like throw your memories and go into it. And it seems like that's kind of what's going on, where we've entered into this collective dream 
and we're choosing to attach to things. But if you like Tom Bombadil is so not attached in a particular way that uh, it's, it's like, if, you know, somebody, it reminds me this time I was on acid outside of a Denver Broncos game. I was rollerblading all around the fucking mile high stadium on acid, which is kind of ironic and um, listening to cool music and rollerblading and just having a great time. And uh, it's like, I was not entering into the domain of that game. Right. I was not, Right, but there were people in there rooting for one side or the other, or yelling at an official, or drinking beer. They were entering into the the uh, ethos or whatever the the domain of this thing. It's almost like a sub program in the Matrix or something. And it seems like we've become so covered, almost like with leeches of sub programming, that most people don't even know what they are anymore. And that's where the Thoreau stuff comes in, where it's like, look, go out to the pond and just chill for a while. And these things will, like, the less attention you give them, whether it's politics, money, relationships, religion, you know, all these things that can potentially become ego distortional leashings or whatever, um, they'll naturally not have the same effect on you. Not to say you'll be immune to them by any means, I don't think, but ultimately I think that's kind of the value of the hermit, hermit, hermit mode, uh, kind of world and ponding it. Yeah, this, this image of the pond or the pool is a good one too. Like this is, this is another thing that Yates brings up is how do you contact the fairies? And that, that was a big thing for Yates, like um, being Irish and he wanted to reconnect with the uh, Irish folklore and essentially the Irish mysteries. Right. And it's like, how do you reconnect with the fairies? And his answer was that uh, you have to, you have to calm the mind, like calm the mind as if the mind is a pool of water and the water is being disturbed and there's ripples and there's ripple patterns all over the, the, the pond. And there's, because of that, there's no reflection in the, on the surface of the pond. You couldn't look in the pond and see yourself or anything um, because it's, it's constantly disturbed. It's, it's, it's broiling basically. Um, but if you are able to calm the pond of the mind, the pool of the mind, and so it becomes the surface of it becomes like a mirror then fairies and other beings will come out of the woodwork and come up to the, the side of it and look into it onto their own reflections. Um, they're attracted by seeing the reflections of the pond of the mind. And I thought that was, wow, that's a great um, poetic image of how it works, you know. Um, they're only going to manifest to you if your mind is settled, you know. Maybe not always. Like there's, there's, there, like obviously there's disturbing aspects of that of that realm as well. But uh, um, the good ones, the ones that you would want to encounter, maybe are the ones that uh, would want to see their own reflections in the pool of your own mind. And it, that just makes sense, you know. Like even if uh, on a on a material level, if you go out into the woods, um, you're not going to encounter any animal trudging along or talking or being noisy or whatever it's only when you stop and you're still and you're listening that then animals might come up and approach you you know so if that's if that's the case for physical animals even more so with these sort of uh ethereal ethereal beings or and soul-based uh entities you're making a vipassana sound much more appealing than before 
Yeah, definitely. Any 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 practice of meditation, I, um, it's just a matter. Of, yeah, just stilling the mind. However, however you do it, um, counting count for me, it's counting backwards from five hundred. <laughs> you know, like, just That's something so to focus. It's so practical. It's like yeah, that'll <laughs> chill you out pretty quick. <laughs> just focusing the mind. You know, like uh, I um, been reading Ginsburg again too, and it, um, Ginsburg's whole thing was like that. It's like. Um, he's, he, he associates it with, uh, Burroughs, <coughs> sorry, Burroughs cut up method where Burroughs is just cutting up text, interrupting the text. And so new values and William meanings. S. Burroughs for anybody who's not aware of who he's talking about. Yeah. So new values of the, of the text come about. Um, but with, uh, with Ginsburg, um, he applied that to meditation. So basically what you're doing with meditation is you're constantly interrupting your thoughts. That's all you're doing is, is like, uh, you're having a, you're having a thought, you're having a daydream or you're having some anxiety or problem or whatever is, is going through your mind. And then you go back to your breath, you know, and going back to your breath cuts, cuts the thought in the same way as, as Burroughs is cutting the words, um, and so you go back to the breath, and then same thing again. Your mind goes off, back to the breath. Mind goes off, back to the breath, or, or whatever it is, like focusing on an object, or focusing on numbers, or, or whatever it is. Um, so is perennial philosophy breath, and even that it has a sine wave characteristic in and out. Um, the anima, yeah. Well, I think there's a bajillion rabbit holes we could go down, but I know it's getting late, Raphael. Are you getting sleepy, rough? Well, just a civilization, I guess it's in a state of flux. How how coy you leave you. Um, I don't know, Azor. Was there anything we haven't addressed that you thought we should? Uh, we could keep talking for a minute, but I we might as well start winding down. Um, just for his sake, at the very least. Yeah, uh, I feel like Jim and I have have. Uh... I've talked the last little stretch. Uh, Raphael, any 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 other things? Well, I'm certainly not going to be the one to stop be stopping a good party. Um, as I always like to ask Jim, anything in particular you'd like me to comment on? Just because, just like Jim said, you know, with this conversation, we've covered quite some topics. You know, there's infinite fractals springing up again every door you may possibly open. It kind of feels like the inklings, I guess, where it's like, I could sit here, I could make a lifetime, I mean, that's what the podcast is in a weird way, but like, these are conversations that I don't ever want to end, so I don't really want it to end, but I want you to get some rest. Um, I can't think of anything I would add to perennial philosophy particularly, um, that's why I was asking Zenora if there's anything we didn't touch on in that regard. It's that's what I mean in the weirdest way, it's like, it seems like breath, it's in and it's out, it, it's always there, like the breath is the constant. And it seems like there's a constant within human history that people have more or less access to, but it's always there. Um, and it can be buried for thousands of years. It could be the, the living embodiment of a civilization like Egypt back in the day or whatever, um, and anything in between. And it is, you know, it can't be named. It's the Tao or whatever. So it, it's this tricky well, thing. Go ahead, bro. Then maybe as a... You know, summary. So overall, I'd say I pretty much agree with uh, what you said. 
that's usually when I just sit there and I'm just like, uh, yeah, it's my a head. silence of agreement, not <laughs> boredom. I don't think. Usually it is, um, and now I lost my train of thought. So Jim, go ahead. I wasn't saying anything about you. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the only thing maybe I'd add is, uh, oh, like we started... I know my point now, and then Snorri can come back just so that I'm not spacing again. So all I would say is that overall, even us or anyone listening in particular as well, what I always like is this idea, especially if we take this again seriously, then we understand it's all holographic. We also understand that what is outside of us is merely our reflection. So no matter how, how dark the night may seem and how crazy, especially now, I wholeheartedly agree with what you said, that ultimately it's about imagination, for lack of a better term. I also liked what you said that Ultimately, this could be seen as imagination means in the image of God, then come up these images of, you know, everything happening in the mind of Buddha and so on. However, the point I want to get to is now anyone listening, even having heard of that, you can actually know that you already contain all of that. I mean, especially this perennial philosophy type. If it is as correct as it appears to be, then of course, this is like an inbuilt awareness, however you want to put it, in each and every one. And just like Jim said, the only point is to remove the resistances, remove the conditioning and the hardening, however you want to call it, and uh, yeah, reactivate. And then truly there is no limit because imagination, once you start accessing it, is limitless. And then, as I like to say, for what can happen now, from now on, all bets are off. And in my view, that's a positive thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll second all of that. That was great. Um, the one thing or so that uh, we might mention is that we were sort of getting on to um, techniques, you know, like what what can we do to sort of uh, get to this point? Like, like not only just talk about it or appreciate it as ideas, but what sort of practical things can we do to... to sort of gain more awareness um and so yeah mentioning meditation i think that that's really important um and something that i want to get more into myself you know the other thing i think is really important obviously is uh is reading you know um and reading books i think is important uh physical printed books just because they allow us to get outside of the network for a while, you know. Like I'm not, I'm not anti-internet. Obviously, like my, my, I, I get that. Yeah, my, like my blogs on the internet. We're on the internet right now, uh, and so on. You know, um, my my book is available through the internet. Um, but everyone get his book. It's dope. I should say you plug that harder than we just did for sure. <laughs> okay. The link is added. But my my uh, my point is that uh, pick up a book and you're outside of the network for a while. You know, you um, you are creating what McLuhan called an anti-environment. You know, an anti-environment means a like a, a a space or a mirror to the sort of existing media environment. And the, the existing media environment now is is basically all encompassing. Um, so yeah. Um, 
Jim, you mentioned before, like I, I like to spend time in the library and I can't even do that. I mean, I'm in Japan, so I'm having to create my own library for fun, you know. Um, but it's something I think it's a it's a it's a power to have now is to be able to have the uh, attention and sort of long spanning attention to be able to read and to be able to read a book all the way through without getting distracted, without looking at your phone or your computer or whatever giving yourself the space to do that and um i think that's that's really important and it's going to be even more important as as things get hairier you know completely agreed and just one thing i'd add to what you had mentioned we just had frank lee on on episode 227 and we spoke about embodiment so it would be you know with all kinds of relaxation yogic techniques dancing However, it's also discussed in that podcast. This may be another really relevant point because sometimes it can happen, of course, that only through, you know, meditation and mental sphere, one may drift off into yet other illusions. So I guess, as usual, a middle path may be suitable for many, meaning both, you know, training and I wholeheartedly agree, you know, even the ability to hold attention spans and actually read a book or dedicate yourself, focus yourself to a process and not be immediately distracted or so distractible unless you want to be and simultaneously in any way shape or form practicing this idea of embodiment so we actually realize that you know this is at least yet another dimension in this case of so-called somewhat physicality that we inhabit and you know having a strong sense of your own body as a temple certainly also goes a long way and helps of course also in being able to maintain attention spans and go ever deeper into realms, you know, as they say, you know, deep roots, high crowns or whatever you want to call it. Something that just came to mind is Definitely. the idea of uh, the kingdom is within, right? So what you guys are talking about is like, you know, with like paying attention and being mindful um, with meditation practices you're talking about, even with psychedelics, dare I say. Um, I remember there was a time when I consciously, because I'm so distractible, you guys can tell, uh, and part of that I could help, and part of that I preferred, I guess you could say. So, um, but uh, back in high school and stuff, I remember there's this place called the Cave of the Swallows, which is like this crazy-ass cave in South America, I think. Uh, and I wanted to skydive into it, but I was always imagining myself there. And what we tend to do, and, and it's, it is what it is, because whatever, polarity and duality uh, at levels, but we tend to be like, the world's getting crazy out there, so find this like still small place in your self and go there and it'll replenish you like like a lot lorian right where it's like oh my god the world's going crazy but they're pretty much untouched just go chill out in the woods um by walden pond with galadriel it'll be great um but i'm wondering if the real trick is to get into that place and then expand it into everything and then you can't be bugged by anything <laughs> in a sense because you're like this is it this is all my happy place um yeah, this is something that Emerson talked about too in the, in uh, his essay called, called "The Poet." And exactly what you said, Jim, is like uh, um, we've got to be able to see the spirit in nature. Um, and so, his idea and Thoreau's idea that going to Walden Pond um, out in nature, being self-reliant, but beyond that, um, starting to see spirit in artificial things as well. And, and that's the bigger trick for me too. Like that's the hard part about it 
is to being able to walk through the city streets and seeing the same spirit there as I see in the middle of beautiful wilderness or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the challenge. That's the big, that's a big one. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I want to sort of reiterate what Raphael said as well, you know, um, yeah, read, but don't be, yeah, don't, uh, be isolated inside like cramped over a book all the time it has yeah has to be embodied you know um so with that like Ezra Pound said like the essence of of writing is poetry but the essence of poetry is music and then you can go further the essence of music is dance you know um so text is directly connected to to the body and the body and movement and the body and movement with others and reading with others you know like the the all of that together and and the same thing with meditation it's like uh um hatha yoga is the process of hatha yoga is to get your body so conditioned that when you actually sit down to meditate you forget about your body because all the uh all the muscle strain and all the tensions within your body are already gone and so then you can focus on calming the mind you know um so totally yeah those um this is advice to me as well i'm not i'm, I'm not standing i don't feel like i'm yeah. preached at don't sweat, don't sweat. <laughs> yeah, i was no. about to say i w it almost feels like i'm in a waldorf school and you're the teacher which i'm okay with from like no. oh this is how to do it but we're learning together this is crazy okay i should it's accountability i i think that's one thing that a lot of cultures subcultures especially like new age and stuff it tends to be like I, I see the truth and I know me, but don't tell me what to do. And it's like, we need accountability, not necessarily to succumb to it, but to at least be aware of differing perspectives. That's just, it just helps everybody dream better, I think. So don't feel yeah, like just, you're coming off pedantic or, you know, like whatever. It's not like that. No, yeah. Just saying this is, is to myself more than anybody else, you know, just to remind myself to do these things. Yeah. Um, and so That's I'm not. That's a big I'm, joke. I'm, we're all, we're all one, right? You're telling you're telling yourself and me. Oh my god! <laughs> Kidding. Anyways, Nor, uh, tell us uh, again, everybody, the title of your book, where they can get it. Um, I am most of the way through. Even um, the ch chod uh, thing we were talking about earlier. That was, I've read that chapter. Guys, the shit we're talking about, he covers quite a bit uh, in a less scattered way. I'm sorry to say, I contribute to that element of this dance, but um, his book is fascinating. And so tell us the title um, and where to get it. And I want to thank you again for giving us uh, your time. Domo arigato. Um, yeah, thank you guys. It was, it was great. Um, so yeah, the book is called Death Sweat of the Cluster. And you can find it through my blog at a group name for grapejuice.com, I think. Or what it, uh, uh, blogs. Uh, I forget what it yeah, is. It, it's it, named for it's grape linked, juice. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, but it's also on Amazon. If you look up Death Sweat of the Cluster on Amazon, you can find it there. Unfortunately, I have to go through Amazon, which is another Klepo, uh version of this. One day <laughs> we'll pop through and say, it's, it's <laughs> your dream, man. We're dreaming. <laughs> and it's funny, it's $17. I pulled the 17 star card today for my card jam, and you just said uh, Emerson was all about like, being a number 17 on this whole little personality spectrum. And, so, and, the, and that, was, uh, that was intentional, too, the $17. Uh, dollars. Um, why that that it, because of the star card and because of that connection perfect it wasn't there specifically today i mean just in wrapping uh you had said that today was a synchronistic uh, 
date for you? What was oh yeah, yeah. This yeah. is something um, something I guess everybody should be aware of. So, so right here in Japan, I don't know for you guys, but this is uh, uh, March the 11th in Japan, which is the 10th year anniversary of the huge um, earthquake and tsunami and nuclear meltdown that happened. Fukushima, um, yeah. And so, and for myself, it's really significant too. Um, 10 years ago, I started reading Ulysses. Um, on that day, um, so today I'm, I'm I'm planning to go back and uh, read this massive uh, biography on Joyce, famous one by uh, Elman today, just to uh, <laughs> to prep, get back into that mindset, you know. That's what's um, up. I uh, but, yeah, uh, it's the tenth for me. I think might be the eleventh now. Uh, it's at seven one seven, actually, ironically, palindrome of seventeen uh, in Colorado. But Raphael, it's the next day, and you are ahead of us both. Um, and I was in Hawaii when Fukushima happened at Starbucks in Waikiki, so I was well, you know, a lot of Japanese tourists were kind of like, oh my god, and we have tsunami warnings and everything, so it was kind of crazy. Um, I, yeah, I just remembered there was one last thing, and that was the kind of last thing. Znor, it's always a pleasure. Um, we'll have to talk more often. You're a great guest and a great mind, and I appreciate you, however solipsistic or not this dream is. You're dope. Um, so thank you for being you, and thank you for your contributions to the DAO. Uh, definitely, definitely appreciate it. Raphael? Thank you so much, Snor. Thank you, Jim. As always, yeah, great topics as usual. Everyone check out your blog and the book and all the amazing references you threw out in this wonderful, I want to say drive-by fashion, but that's more Jim style. However, you know, we made the distillation happen. So thank you very, very much. It feels like a digital mystery school. Like it is so weird. It's like the work you're doing, I can actually glean from, but I don't have to like you know go to an order or something. It's kind of cool. Yeah, the open the open mystery. We're all part of it, right? But uh, yeah, I think the the topic that we had for today, perennial philosophy, it could have gone anywhere. It was such a huge topic that uh, yeah, it was sort of bang 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 all over the place. But I think uh, that's kind of the nature of it now. Um, but yeah, thank. Thank you to you guys. Um, that was really great to talk to you. And uh, Raphael, great to get to know you better as well. Um, I, I feel I know Jim uh, more, but I, I think I got to know you a little bit more this time as well, and that's been excellent. Make sure you kids cross-pollinate when the teacher's not around. Like, you guys could have uh, – I'm always astounded that, like, people are like, oh, I've never talked to Raphael before. I'm like, he's, like, one of my best friends, and I've never met the kid. Uh, so make sure, you know, this is Team Rabbit Hole in action, right? Where it's like, let's all get to know each other because the playground's fucking awesome and there's some cool kids out here. So, uh, you know, you can play tag, you can play Red Rover, you can play hide and seek. There's a there's a person <laughs> wanting to play all these things and more. There's a market for it all. So, uh, yeah, it sounds it's more like you're interested in getting to know Raphael more. Do it, Raphael. Reach out to him. You're the Libra. He's the Hermit. He's the Virgo. So you're going to probably have to do the effort there. But I could only do so much. Anyway, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure as always. And uh, yeah, Godspeed in this crazy dream called life. Thank right, you. See you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Redefine until divine. Enjoy yourselves. Radio Pokey, talk, 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 talk.